what kind of microphone do you have? I know you were going to give me like a, a how to improve my audio, some help a while ago, and then we never followed through. What what kind of mic do you have? So I have I, I have both of the ones that everyone says are the best mics for this purpose. I have the Heil PR40 that Dan Benjamin and all those people use, and I have the Shure SM7B. And I, I prefer the Shure. I prefer the way my voice sounds with the Shure. The, the Heil PR40 makes people sound a little bit more nasal and has like weird... It, it's like... It's missing like the mid bass, but it has a lot of the lower bass. So you sound like really bassy, but but not that present and not that warm with it with the PR40. So the SM7B is is a really really nice sounding mic, probably the best sounding mic for this purpose. But it has the giant asterisk that it needs a really nice and generally very expensive preamp to power it properly. Yeah, screw that. <laughs> So that's what I use, of course. <laughs> no, I've, I've got the old Rode Podcaster, which is probably, I don't know, I, could, I guess I could do better. You could. I mean, it, it, there's a question on how much it matters. Because your show has guests that, 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 that rotate out every week, like, you don't want to sound that different from the guests. Now, there have been a lot of episodes of your show where I think you sound worse than the guests, but yeah, that might be sound. because of, like, weird EQ going on or something else going on. You know, that, that might be something else in the process being not that great. Um, I don't know. Uh, and the other thing was, how do you talk into your mic? I keep the mic underneath my face. Like I'm not, it, it's sticking straight up and I'm, you know, it's close to my mouth, but I have it where it's underneath my, my face. It's more or less like at my chin and going down. Yeah. You're doing it wrong. Yeah. You're supposed to, I'm supposed <laughs> to be like staring right into it. Right. Yeah. Pretty much like my, and, and like, yeah, like so for mine, like because I have the the crazy low output SM7B, I am like my lips are almost touching the pop filter. Sometimes they do touch the pop filter. Uh, I'm like right on top of it, talking directly straight on into it. Yeah. See what happened? I'm asking all these questions because I came in. Uh, I spent a big chunk of the holidays not working in my home office. I was downstairs, you know, in the dining room, you know, being more of a, you know, part of the family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I came up to record the uh, Star Wars episode of the show with uh, Syracuse and Guy. Yeah. That was good, uh, by the way. I thought I would hate that because it was so long. I don't care that much about Star Wars, but that was actually really good. I really enjoyed it. I listened to those are the, the compliments from people who said, I don't even like Star Wars, but I like that show. That, to me, was yeah. that's all that matters. That, that meant that it came out the way I wanted it to. I came up to my office, and the mic, my mic arm was on the ground in front of my desk. And I thought, I knew I didn't put it there. And Amy records her show up here. And I didn't think she'd recorded an episode recently. But I, I thought it must have been her. And I was like, why in the world would she disconnect it from the desk and put it on the floor? And I was a little annoyed. And then I looked, and it was the fact that the arm mount had broken. It just like, just right where you would think, right where the clamp goes on the desk, mm -hmm. just like a stress fracture, um, which kind of makes sense because it's, you know, supports a fair amount of weight. And I, it's the same arm that I had had ever since I started doing the first run of the show, which I think was like 2007. I don't even know when the when that was. So. But anyway, I had to get a new podcast arm. And, uh, of course, I didn't set it up until right when we were supposed to record tonight. <laughs> Naturally. And I'm looking at the instructions, and it's like, wow, they're showing me to set this mic up in a very different way than I have ever uh, ever used the microphone. Yeah, no, you're definitely doing it wrong. I mean, certain mics are made to be addressed, like, on the side, but that's not one of them. Yeah, but I'm not talking into the side. I am talking into the top of it. 
Well, you're kind of talking like over the top of it, like you'd play a flute. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's no good. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I could try to fix it right now. It seems to me though that if I do it their way, I'm gonna. It's what I'm gonna be seeing. I won't be able to see like my computer or anything. Yeah, you you kind of got to like look through them, like through the arm, and kind of look. You know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll put it in an angle or something. Does this sound any better? Um, yeah, you sound a little bit louder, a little bit clearer. I mean, it's not a huge difference, right. but it's a little, a little different. All right. If this, if you see hear a terrible noise, it means that I've unscrewed this thing. <laughs> I mean, the Rode Podcaster is not an amazing mic. Like, you're not gonna, you're never gonna sound amazing from it. Um, but you, you can sound good enough from it. I can't get the thing screwed on tight. All right. Well, oh shit. This will make for excellent audio. <laughs> what a broadcast. All right. Oh, now it's all floppy. <laughs> These things are ridiculous. Also, the Rode Boom Arm that I assume you're using, I'm also yeah. using one. It's not the best arm. I mean, it, it is. It's pretty shitty. Like it, it works, but like like mine, like any slight vibration anywhere, like in the desk or anything, a spring inside the arm rattles, <laughs> which is completely the opposite of the kind of thing it's supposed to do. <laughs> and, and it's just like I've just I haven't ever. Re- replaced it because like you know it's not broken yet it still works oh. but i even had the thought when i had to re when i had to order one i just went to amazon and i saw that it said road and i thought well i've got a road mic might as well get it yeah um and, I, and the old one was a heil is that how you pronounce it yeah I well that's how, I that's how other right. people pronounce it i don't know all right um and even though I like I said it was seven years old and I sort of don't I'm not really angry that it broke i still feel like well it broke i'm not gonna buy another heil right <laughs> Uh, so I just bought the road, but then I had this, and it was one of those things where I, you know, you, you, Amazon makes it so easy. So it's like, that's my thought process. My thought process was not a Heil. Uh, I already have a road mic and it looked highly rated on Amazon. And so like two clicks later, it was on its way. And so and then with a little bit of thought, I thought, Hmm, maybe I should have, uh, taken the usual advice and ask Marco. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm using the exact same arm, like the road, you know, PS, whatever arm it's their only arm. I think, um, I'm using the same one. Uh, just because I had the podcaster. I, I like, I bought the kit for five by five and then I upgraded my mic, but never upgraded the boom arm because it still works. The desk um, clamp does look sturdier than the Heil. Like the Heil, after yeah. having looked at it, it's like, I'm kind of surprised it didn't snap off right away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I don't really know where the road one would break. Like looking at the construction, like you know, what I don't know what part of this would be the weak point, but I don't think. I mean, I I think it's more likely that like one of the springs in the arm would snap and it would lose tension and just drop to the desk. Yeah, I think that yeah, would be that, more likely to fail. Yeah, and that actually was starting to happen with my Heil that it was starting starting to lose some tension, and yeah. I could not. There's no way to like adjust that. Yeah, the road has these weird screws on the on the on the uh, arm, but I don't know if those do anything. Yeah, what are these Velcro straps for? Those are for attaching the cable. Like you, you basically attach the cable to the arm on its way down using those. So that way you can have like a nice tidy cable going down to the base of the arm. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah, that's what they're for. All right. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'll take a picture of my setup so you can see. Quiet week for you. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's nothing's ever going on. It's uh. <laughs> for the record, Jesus. we are rec- we're recording. <laughs> On Thursday the 8th, which is a night after you recorded ATP, where I presume you talked about probably all the same things we're going to talk about tonight, but I couldn't have listened to it yet because I, I didn't catch the live broadcast. 
But people like you. They won't mind hearing you talk about it twice. Yeah, they should be all right. <laughs> when did you publish your piece? Sunday? Yeah, it was Sunday night. I, I, part of the problem, I think, was that I, I published it um, on a Sunday night, right before a, or right as a holiday vacation for a lot of people was ending, and there's nothing going on in the news. Right. And so a lot of the places that, that picked it up, a lot of people were telling me, like, yeah, never publish things like at that time because, like, people are so desperate for news at some of these bigger sites that, like, you know, there's nothing going on in tech on, you know, on a on a random Monday. I mean, CES was starting, but nothing nothing had really been announced of any uh, meaning yet, and uh, so <laughs> everyone was saying like I couldn't have possibly had worse timing if I didn't want it to be that noticed. Like, if you had published the exact same piece word for word. Not changed one bit, but maybe on Wednesday, it right. might have. It might have. You know, I think it would have gotten the attention it deserved, but it wouldn't have gotten the attention it didn't deserve. I don't know how it even had to put it. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, like it. I mean, it, honestly, it didn't deserve the attention it got. That's for sure. Uh, it wasn't good. Like that's the, the the regret I have about it is that it just wasn't very good. Like it was nowhere near my best work. Uh, it was. It was just. I didn't put enough effort into it. I made a bunch of little mistakes in it, and it just wasn't very good. And then for that to become extremely widespread and and uh, to have it be under uh, quite a bit of scrutiny, uh, that is just frustrating. Yeah. So for the record, I and mean, it's I'm my sure fault. People listening extemporaneously, like you know, people who are listening when this episode first comes out, will know exactly what we're talking about. But for the record, we should. Say what it was, which is that on Sunday you published an article titled, headlined, uh, Apple has lost the functional high ground. And I think, if if I may, a nutshell summary is I, you've detected that over the last few years the quality of Apple's software has gotten worse. Correct. Not any one particular thing, just in general. And that it concerns you about the future of the company and it's the reason you switched to the Mac in the first place a decade ago is that you were sick of having little stupid things like little annoying bugs here, there, everywhere, all day long, um, that the it just works factor is sort of fading from Apple's software platforms. Right, and and like and a lot of the a lot of the pushback. I mean, the reason it spread so quickly, so incredibly quickly. I mean, it it had hundreds of retweets within a few hours of publishing it. Um, and then it spread from there. The The reason it spread, I think, is because a lot of people agree. Uh, and, and a lot of people still argued with it, of course. But I, I think if I was totally wrong, it wouldn't have spread. You know, it's not like I'm publishing this on some major news site where people like you would make fun of me if I got it wrong. Like, I'm publishing this on my personal site. Like, it's not widely read most of the time. And so, you know, it, I don't think it would have spread if there wasn't some truth there. Yeah, I think the word I used, and I saw a couple of other people use it. I know Hockenberry did too, and I think it's because it's the perfect word that it resonated. Right, or it hit a nerve, one of those. I think resonate is better. Yeah, probably. That's, I see, that's why you're the pro writer. So. I, I don't know. There's To me, <laughs> resonate is exactly what happened. It's, it's like it it felt true more so than thought true. It just felt right. Right, and very few people have said, you are completely wrong. Most people have just said, well, I would have said it differently or it isn't as severe as you say. Which, and, so, and that's like, you know, what, what I regret when, and, you know, where I felt my failing was that I worded some things too severely. 
uh, and which of course is a, is a frequent problem I have. But uh, so I, you know, I worded some things too severely, and and that detracted from the uh, validity of what I wrote. But the fact is, I think the the overall sentiment of Apple's software has some quality problems in recent years, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. Uh, that I think is what resonated with people right. pretty unambiguously. Yeah, you do. You you have a sort of it's almost like a no nonsense style. Like, and and I I'll vouch for it. You certainly aren't doing it. You're you're not sensational. You don't you don't overstate things for sensational purposes because you're not looking for hits or page views because you don't even have you know you use the deck. You don't even get paid by page views you know like you don't you're not going to get extra this month because you had an explosive story this week that got you know a couple hundred thousand extra page views doesn't give you a nickel right in so, fact it, it, it could actually cost me money if i end up going over some bandwidth allocations at my host so right. the more popular an article is it, it actually might cost me more money that, that's funny it's actually true right which is the opposite of when you know um you know when dan lyons trumps up something at valley wag it's because you know they measure their success month to month by page views you're not in that game, you know. That's not why, and that's not the way that you overstated it. It's just sort of a no nonsense style. Well, but you know, and and you're right that that's what I intended. But because I I did I did use like so one, like one of the examples like I I originally said quality has taken a nosedive, and that was the wrong word. Really, it hasn't taken a nosedive. It's been a gradual decline. And what I meant really was a decline that's just now in really bad shape. But a nosedive suggests like an acceleration of like all of a sudden it's now dropping qu quickly. And that's not really the case. It's it's more of a gradual progression. But anyway, so like, you know, there are things like that. Um, and, and yeah, overall, like I, I regret having written it simply because it put some of my most mediocre to worst work in front of so many people and put my name on it forever. Whereas like... I, I don't regret having said that Apple has problems. Uh, I just regret that I didn't say it better. Right. And what happened then is that you, it really went explosive. I mean, like oh you, my God. you even said, I guess it was your Google Analytics, but whatever, you, you, you know, you had, you were, your analytics showed that it was more popular than anything you had written in all of 2014. Correct. Which is amazing, really, that, you know, five days into the year, you've already topped last year. It just got picked up. It got picked up and relinked and relinked and relinked and... I guess Business Insider got it started. Here's their headline. Yeah. Apple's software is in a, quote, nosedive, end quote, that is deeply concerning, longtime Apple supporter says. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, Arrow writing a perfect Business Insider headline. Right. And, and the thing is, like, usually I could pick on Business Insider and say, you guys are such pieces of shit for this, because usually they are. In this case, they really, the original version had a couple of, like, uh, of paraphrases in it that were not what I said. Um, that were more inflammatory, but he he I since complained about them and and he he updated them to be more accurate. So over and the headline like I did say that you know as I said like I didn't really mean to say it that severely, but I did say that. So overall, of of all the hack jobs they've done to me over the years, this is one of the better ones. Yeah, but it's I guess it's not yeah it's not necessarily that as it stands right now that it's unfair, but it's you know fuel to the fire. Right, and and actually, in a lot of people don't realize this. Um, a lot of people have no clue how insanely popular and pervasive Business Insider is. Uh, mm. Like, I, whenever whenever I mention on Business Insider any context, I will have everybody who has ever met me 
my mom's friends, my my friends' parents, like people who are outside of of the tech news sphere, they will all contact me and be like, "Oh my god, I read this article about you on Business Insider." You know, congratulations, or like they consider it a good thing whenever I mention there, even though it's always trashy. <laughs> but um, I, so, like sometimes, like one of my products will occasionally get mentioned in some major tech publication, like you know, MacWorld. Uh, or occasionally I've even been like in New York Times or Wall Street Journal or something like that, never a peep from anybody. When I'm in Business Insider, for the stupidest, smallest thing, everyone in my life comes forward, oh my god, I haven't seen you in 15 years, but I read this article about you in Business Insider. That site, like, I don't know why it's so popular, but it is really popular. And so whenever they write anything about me or one of my one of my products... It gets picked up everywhere. It gets carried everywhere. And they ultimately dictate the narrative. If you look, like, almost every other site that republished this article was republishing from Business Insider. A lot of them were linking back to Business Insider instead of my site. A lot of them were taking the Business Insider headlines and quotes word for word. It really was Business Insider that 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 led the the uh, promotion on this, whether willingly or not. I I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But, like, people do not realize, like... Your site seeds all the tech sites. Like, whenever you write about something, all the tech sites write about it a day later. Business Insider seeds everything else. It's yeah. really weird. And and I wish it wasn't that way, but it, it's the, it really it's, is. It's sort of the opposite of my sort of popularity. Like, my popularity <laughs> yeah. is super niche. And so, like, it is a big deal for some people. Like, if I link to somebody, first time I ever linked to their blog, a lot of people will, like, tweet to me, like, oh, my God, you just made my day. And it's... I. I that's hard for me. I, I don't. I'm still not. I can't say I'll ever get used to that. But I understand it. I know. Yeah, I know what it was like. I know what it was like the first time uh, that Slashdot linked to Daring Fireball way back in 2002, and it was just crazy. And it's not even that I loved Slashdot, but it's like I knew that holy shit, that's a big deal. Right. It was like getting um, on the dig front page back in 2006. Right. I also remember that my site didn't go down, and it was you know I thought you know I had, up until that point I had no idea whether you know, you, there was no way for me to fake it. I couldn't, you know, know if I would survive a slash dotting. Um, but it, I don't think it, it like some guy, you know, somebody writes a blog post. I've never linked to them before. I link to them. They're not going to get their mom calling them and say, hey, I heard saw a daring fireball link to you. Because no. their mom doesn't know who I am either. Unless the know? mom is really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it would be an exception. It would have to be like, you know, like Brent Simmons, where his mom's like a programmer and stuff. Right, right. Uh, and I, you know, I shouldn't even say mom. You know, mom, dad, anybody who's not in the thing and is already one of my regular readers. Whereas Business Insider has a very, for whatever reason, has a very broad readership, like of typical people. Yeah, like what they write goes very far, which is really unfortunate because it's so bad usually. Yeah, it's something to do with you know that they're they're a certain brand of, I don't know, sensationalizing stuff. Well, look, I mean, you know, there there are things in the world that. Like, there are choices people can make where you can do things like the good, high-quality, morally sound way, or oh, if you take this one little shortcut here, if you're willing to give up a little bit of integrity here or a little bit of sensationalism here, you can boost your numbers by 15, 20, 30%. And they choose the latter all the time. Like, so, like, whereas you choose the former, yeah. and that's what we consider in our community to be, like, the, the right way to do it. Yeah. If you're if you're shameless enough, uh, and if if you prioritize numbers and success of the in that kind over integrity and quality, uh, then 
you can get insane numbers and insane popularity and and they have chosen that yeah and let's not overstate things here either they're they're certainly not the worst they're they're you know and the other thing too they have talented people and they have had talented people dan fromer used to write there yeah that's where uh, i met him i used to hate him and then like he came to the tumblr offices i met him there first and then like he left and became a, a normal good person it was amazing and i know jay jay yarrow who wrote this piece on you i uh you know he's good. He's smart. You know, I you could just tell from like reading <laughs> him on something. Twitter. Uh, Nick Carlson, who I think is his name, the guy who just wrote the published the book on Yahoo uh, and Marissa Meyer. You know, he's a good yep. reporter, and uh, he is. I'll give him that. Yeah. You know, and I think it's interesting too. I think I think the success he's having promoting his book because it seems I'm reading a lot of stuff about his book. It's just popping up a lot of places. I think it just goes to show that at Business Insider they're good at promoting stuff, including themselves. You know, like that's part, it's not just that they're, whether you're good, bad, or whatever, as a writer, a reporter, it, being able to self-promote is a skill. And that, it's, to me, is part of their, a big part of their success. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Henry Blodgett's always had that too, founder of the site. <laughs> Among some other issues, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a definite thing though. You know, it's like there's, there's certain people, you know, like, uh, he, he's good at getting on TV, you know, and there's that certain type of Wall Street person who is like just goes on CNBC all the time. And I, it would drive me nuts. I, I would hate going on TV. I would I wouldn't think I'd want to go on once. I can't uh, imagine like the, the amount of stress that would bring. I would I would definitely if I was ever invited, I would definitely decline. I've had invitations many times, and I almost – I mean, I, I went on Charlie Rose that one time, and that was cool. And it was also pretty easy because it was like 5 in the afternoon. Getting to New York at 5 in the afternoon is super easy. I just take like a 1 o'clock train from Philly, and I like going to Manhattan anyway. So that was cool, and that was – I had a blast, and it was well worth – you know, it wasn't that much of a time commitment. Um, but like I've had offers to go on like Bloomberg TV, and it's like you know they want me in New York by like 5 a.m., Eastern, <laughs> yeah, and it's like no, it's not going to work. And it, but it really doesn't com com compute with them that somebody would not want to be on TV. Like people who are in TV seem to be people who've, whether they're on the air or not, like or whether they're just working as like a producer or whatever. It seems like the TV industry is only composed of people who've spent their whole lives wanting to be in the TV industry, <laughs> and they can't. It just doesn't compute. It it doesn't. They they can't grasp it. And I say, you know, I. I I really don't think I ever want to be on your show. Thanks for asking. I'm flattered, but you know, being in New York by five a.m. is right. not it's not going to work. Well, also, like it's it's similar to the to the whole like you know you should do this for exposure kind of arguments. Like, yeah, a lot yeah, of times they they don't they can't imagine why anybody would say no to this great honor that they're bestowing upon you. And yeah. and the fact is, like, there's a cost to you being on TV, and there's risks to you being on TV, and it it just might not be worth it. Like that's how like. You know, I'm realizing as I'm as I'm getting older and hopefully wiser, but I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So probably not wiser, but as I at least get older, I'm realizing that like talking to journalists for interviews for stories about you know anything like when they call you for a quote or anything, like it is almost never worth uh, agreeing to that because the risk is so high that they're going to distort your words to fit their narrative in a way that you don't approve of that that you can't that's totally out of your control and it's like in this day and age like if i have something to say i can say it on my blog now granted yeah. now that it has the other problem which just happened which is like i better be sure i say it well there and everything i write there can be taken and quoted elsewhere but at least i wrote it my way like 
it, it seems like less of a risk to do it that way than like to just be quoted in some random news story and, and like you have no control over that you you usually unless you have a very strong relationship with them usually you can't get like review like quote review or anything uh and and if somebody screws up and publishes something that you didn't quite say there's pretty much nothing you can do about it you know that even if even if they publish a correction the damage is done yeah so it's like and going on tv is probably even worse because like you're live like you can't even carefully think about your words for very long like you're live you, you need you need to get a comment right now and try to sound smart and it it just uh and everyone's watching you know yeah and it's also it's not leisurely yeah exactly i think i i think i <laughs> it's funny i i i was going to say i think i did pretty well on charlie rose but they've never asked me back so maybe not <laughs> I remember. I think I watched it. I remember just like like you know. I think I immediately forgot about it, so it couldn't have been good or bad, really. It was uh, me and David Pogue talking about the iPhone five. I want to say like I'm going to place it two years ago. Pretty sure it was iPhone five. Well, you you probably did exactly what you what is like the optimal scenario for a TV appearance like that, which is be good but completely forgettable Hmm. because we all forgot it. And that's that's good because yeah. like it could go a lot worse. It can't really go much better, and so like that's that's and then and now you can say I've been on the Charlie Rose show. You can tell your parents; they can see it. Like it's all good. Yeah. So you have all the benefits, but but nothing went wrong. Sitting in a chair that was warmed by uh, Matt Damon's ass. Is that an honor? I'm not sure. I don't know. It's pretty cool though. Walking into a room <laughs> as he walks out. <laughs> Did you stop uh, by and say, "Hey, hey, I love I like your site, man." Uh, yeah, yeah, he was, he was, he wanted a t-shirt. I'm sure he's a reader. No, I learned, I learned what to do in that scenario from, uh, from Merlin Mann. It's such great advice that you just have to, you have to know this before, just think about it now before when there's no famous people around. And if you ever meet somebody who's famous, truly famous, and you're going to get a chance to say something, all you, all you say is huge fan of your work. Oh, that's good. Merlin's that's so it. good. You just say huge fan of your work, and you mean it. You know, don't say it if you don't mean it. Just look at them and say, "Hey, great to meet you." Huge, huge fan of your work, and then that's it. You just and then you let them go. You just you maybe neither. I think with Damon, we never we didn't even stop walking, but it was you know there was a moment I could say something. I just said, "Hey, huge fan of your work," and he goes, "Thanks," and then uh, he left. See, and you have that story too, so it yeah. worked out. All right. Uh, yeah. And anyway, go, what you said is exactly right, though, about talking to reporters where and it's definitely my experience where almost all of them have the story written, whether it's actually written, written or it's just like an outline in their head. Right. They've already got it written and they will take your quote and make it fit what they've already written nine times out of ten. So I don't talk to reporters anymore either unless I know them, unless I know either right. know them personally or if I'm familiar with their work and trust them. Yeah, and and you know it's different when you know them personally, you know, and and I yeah I'll talk to people I know, but but uh, that's a pretty small list, really. Yeah, or just you know just familiar with their work, but yeah, again, but Joe Joe Schmo from Bloomberg, no way, not a, just, yeah, terrible idea. Right. It can only go badly, and it right. probably will. Right. Uh, I almost worked there at Bloomberg. Yeah, when I when I was interviewing for what what became the Tumblr job. That was I was weighing those two offers. I, I had gotten an offer from both. I interviewed at both places, and uh, I got to choose between Bloomberg and this giant glass building where all the walls inside were glass, and this caused problems because you couldn't see how to exit the conference room you were in. <laughs> There's like optical illusions everywhere, and they, event, they 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 told me they had to add this like row of of uh, stickers that were like just like the company logo 
this row of decals on every wall at that approximately eye level, just so you wouldn't like run into things, like run into walls. It, you know, typical corporate design of like it, it looks really cool, it doesn't work at all. And uh, so I get to weigh that of crashing into glass walls and sitting in uh, in a very long table with about four feet of width of the table assigned to me, a uh, little six-inch rim around the desk, like not even cubicle walls, like a, like a six-inch rim around my little four-foot space, uh, typing on uh, a PC uh, working on Fortran code. No. Or, yeah, yeah, that was the job. Really? And, and everyone, I, everyone I interviewed with was not that nice, and I thought I bombed the interview. And so like, I, got, I got an offer for, for an interview that I thought I bombed from people I don't really want to work with in this terrible environment, like this giant like boiler room kind of environment, just like this little strip of a desk with a Fortran terminal. Or I could go work for this guy who is, looks like he's 15, David Karp, and he's working out of some office I don't quite understand that a bunch of other people are in, but he doesn't work for them. Some, there's some arrangement where they're sharing the office or something. Everything is red and colorful, and the office is full of children's toys. And he told me that he'd buy me a Mac, and I could work on a Mac. So I went with that. <laughs> that was literally, <laughs> like, why I went there. <laughs> I can't believe they've still got Fortran code in production. I mean, that was literally a oh, joke. Yeah. On, I think it was this week's Simpsons. No, I actually, I was, I was recently, uh, I, I was on a flight recently sitting next to a guy who works for IBM, and he was he was a young guy. He was uh, in his probably mid twenties, um, and he so but he works on in IBM's mainframe division, which is still running. And there's like you know big banks and insurance companies and things like they still use IBM mainframes. And he writes all in Fortran or no, I think it was COBOL, one of those two. He like that's what he does all day, is write low level mainframe operating system code in COBOL or Fortran. Yeah, that's crazy. In this, and he's—I mean, he wasn't even born when this thing was was originally written. I feel bad because there's probably people who listen to the show who have a job like that. Oh, I'm I don't sure it's, make fun. it's more common just, than you think. That's that's, not, that's the I, crazy part. Yeah, I don't really want to make. Fun. I'm not trying to make fun. I'm just sort of stunned that there's that much. Um, uh, what would you call it? Like inertia yeah. with programming languages that they just once they get any kind of mass success, they just never die. Well, in a system like that, I mean, if you think about it, like, from, from like, a, a programmer out of college viewpoint, and you think, why are you using Fortran for your bank's large systems? You're stupid. That That's dumb. I want to rewrite this whole thing in Node or whatever. <laughs> and then, you know, but the reality is, like, the wise programmer would look at that and be like, all right, this bank's massive financial backend that has been running fine for the most part for, like, 30 years is written in some crazy language... Do I want the job of rewriting it from scratch? Hell no. Like that's that is that has red flags all over it. You do not want that kind of responsibility. Get out of there. Like I don't yeah. know any I don't know any wise programmers who would take that job. Yeah. It's instead of if it ain't broke don't fix it. It's if it ain't <laughs> broke don't rewrite it. And certainly don't touch it when there's like massive amounts of money at stake. Right. Crazy. Uh, let's take a break. I'll do the first sponsor, and it is our good friends at Fracture. You guys remember Fracture? Um, you send them your photos, and they send them back to you printed directly on glass. Uh, not paper with a piece of glass in front of it in the frame. The picture is printed right on the glass. I've never seen anything else like it. Uh, you really do kind of have to see it to believe it. 
it really makes it seem as though it's right there on the surface. I always compare it to like when the iPhone switched to the laminated displays, putting the pixels closer to the glass. Um, It's exactly that sort of effect, but with an analog print of your photos. They have all sorts of sizes to choose from. Uh, The square ones that Marco has made famous for printing your app icons for every time he sells an app to somebody, he uh, makes a, a copy looks really nice i've been in marco's office they look great on the wall uh two really really big ones you know big rectangular ones um they ship in these amazing containers that double as like the frame that you can use to hang on the wall or to put on your desk uh propped up right there in this nifty cardboard shipping container you don't have to buy an extra frame to put the thing in you can mount them directly on the wall just as the glass they look really cool um so there's nothing else to buy. It's not like when you get printouts and then you have to go put them in a frame and you have to take the frame apart and then it's easy, so easy. You just send them your pictures. They send you back printouts of them on glass. Um, where do you go to find out more? Go to their website, uh, Fracture. I think it's FractureMe.com. That's correct. Uh, and there's a new coupon code. Use this code, Daring Fireball, all one word. And you will save 15% on whatever you order. So that's great. Their prices are already fantastic. Save 15% though. Use that code DARINGFIREBALL and go to FractureMe.com and uh, see for yourself. Great sponsor. Really, really recommend them. Yeah, I'm looking right at uh, five Fracture prints in my office right now. Oh my God. They're all, we, we have them all over the place. And they're just a great gift idea too. Um. So I don't know the media backlash, not backlash, over 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 representation of your thing is kind of interesting and it's sad and depressing. But I feel like the better topic is to actually talk about some of the problems Apple software has. Yeah, because one sure. of the things I got uh, is it definitely because it 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 hits such a mainstream media thing. I mean, people within Apple definitely noticed and. I heard a, from a couple friends at Apple, not like PR, not like Apple PR reaching out and telling me, you know, trying to spin it or anything, just, you know, like engineers. And some of them, I, I, it was really interesting what they said. All of them said different things, but like one of them was pretty surprised and more or less of, do you really think that? Because, you know, I, you know, this is the friend at Apple's more or less paraphrase that, you know, I think that we've been doing pretty good. It seems to me like, you know, the bug, you know, the open bugs in radar are lower than they used to be years ago. Do you really think that? And I said, I have to say there is something to it though. It seems to me like there's more annoyances than there used to be, but there were definitely some people with an Apple who, who disagreed. And then there were some who did agree. Um, but I'm curious, I'm curious specifically, like, cause that's one thing your article didn't have is it didn't really have like a list of here's some of the bugs. Right, and and that was, I, that was ultimately a failing. Um, I wasn't really talking about like here's five things that are that are the problems today. Um, I was really talking about the general trend, and so it's hard to give a comprehensive list of examples because many of these things are like little annoyances or little you know occasional failures or occasional bugs. Um, I heard from from uh, from a few different engineers, and 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 I read a couple of Reddit comments. Um, from people who are who are allegedly with an apple and stuff and and it it seems to be a, a few people thought that everything's fine 
but most of the people uh, seem to think that that yeah, like finally, thank you for saying this. Um, like that kind of attitude. Like yes, this is a, like no one listens. That kind of that kind of thing. And it's hard to get a read on what the truth is, or even if these people are the real people, you know, who actually work at Apple. Who knows? Uh, it could have just been some random person on the internet. But I, I think there's like your comment about like you know the number of radars like. Apple could be measuring things that don't reflect the the overall usage uh, of you know annoyances and bugs that actually hit people in real life. Um, they could just be measuring the wrong things, or the things they're measuring aren't changing. And so, for instance, um, they have the built-in crash reporter in in every recent version of every OS uh, that you can say automatically send diagnostics to Apple when when stuff breaks. Uh, but that only will send a report if a crash happened, like. If you hit a bug that wasn't a crash, the, that, that's not going to include that. Hmm. And most of the bugs I see recently aren't crashes. Like, I'm not getting kernel panics on my computers, you know, or, you know, back when I was, that was, that was the fault of some I.O. driver, you know. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the things I heard from one of the people who was sort of not, not really believing in that. It was that specifically that crashes are down. You know, and that's something that they they can measure because they have the crash reporter, and that it just made made him surprised that this was a thing, and and really was it was not like um, a defensive take. It's like typical Apple person, very thoughtful, um, really, really genuinely curious because he found it surprising, really wanted to know, and and also absolutely believed in the sort of hey, when there's smoke, there's fire. You know, clearly this. Marco's post resonated with a lot of people, so I I, I want to get to the bottom of you know what this is. But crashes definitely aren't it. Exactly, and like like earlier tonight, um, one of the many annoyances when using an Apple TV, um, you know, I, I turn on the Apple TV after it being asleep for most of the day, and it shows three prompts in a row that say your Apple TV is not connected to the internet. Like you hit menu and it just shows you another one, and like so there's three of those that were queued up. So those aren't being coalesced. And, and then I go back to the home screen, and it is connected to the internet. And right. showing new stuff, so they at were which out point, of date and weren't canceled. Right, at which point those things should have been disregarded anyway. Never right. mind it, right? File under, never mind. Right. Why were they even showing when it was asleep and nobody was trying to do anything with it? Good question right. there, too. Um, so those are all quality issues, right? Not crashes. They're not going to show up in any bug reports because I'm not going to report it. Look, I'm talking with you... I. I'm not going to report that on radar. Like it's not worth the time to even type it up and go through the, all the forms. Um, then I I hit menu a couple times to get out of the the like deep hierarchy of the movie structure I was in to get back to the home screen. I know you can just hold it down, but I didn't. Uh, the first time I hit it, it went boop and it did it did its thing. And then the second time I hit it, it just went boop 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 boop, and I kept hitting it and nothing was happening. And all the clicks just queued up and queued up and queued up and nothing happened. And I'm like, all right. Do I do I reset it? Do I reset? And then like thirty seconds later, it executes all of them, like because they had all queued up, so everything's mm. moving around like crazy. I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I wanted. Um, again, another bug. Uh, two nights ago, I had to actually unplug it and plug it back in to get it to respond to any remote commands. Um, I tried two different remotes. We have multiple Apple TVs in the house. They both have similar bugs, so I know it's not just one of them being like dying or flaky. Um, and I know, I mean, certainly Merlin has talked a lot about his Apple TV issues too. But there's issues with authenticating content. He's uh, like the he's like the Jeffrey Zeldman of Apple TV. You know, like the way like that everything. Zeldman 
Zeldman just has the worst Murphy's Law luck with anything <laughs> technology. Like, like Merlin clearly has has caught like the Apple TV branch of that that syndrome. Right, exactly, and like, but, like I don't think everything. that's uncommon, you know. And like you know, I so often like we'll we'll go to watch a movie and it'll sit there on authorizing forever, and then eventually fail. And it's like, really like, come on! I bought this. These are movies we bought. My kid is like sitting down. He wants to watch something. If it doesn't show him in a minute, he's gonna start getting antsy and possibly scream. Like, come on, just <laughs> just come on, work. That's all. Like, and this is just the Apple TV, right? And 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 AirPlay to the Apple TV works about a quarter of the time and it doesn't work i can vouch for the fact that it doesn't work with a two or three year old to try to explain how (laughs) in the old in the old days we'd have to get in the car and drive to blockbuster and the disc might be scratched right yeah it does yeah kids yeah kids don't want to hear it (laughs) kids expect the thing that they see on the screen to play when you punch the button exactly so and so this is just apple tv this is just like one week's worth of just like what I can recall, not not even one week. What I can recall over the last two days, this is like this is what goes on over the Apple TV, and that's not even not even including various like lo, you know like infinite timeouts and and failures with Netflix, which I, I'll give Apple the benefit of the doubt and assume that's Netflix's problem. Um, and, but you know, even but like with Apple stuff, authorizing the Apple purchase stuff, even that you know that has all those problems. So that's just one product, right? And it's an AirPlay, and I, I hear from everybody that AirPlay doesn't work well for them. AirPlay yeah. works fine for me if I'm going to a, an airport express that I have connected to a speaker in my kitchen. It works fine for that. It fails every time for Apple TV. Uh, or, no, sorry, it fails 75% of the time for Apple TV. <laughs> like, I'll do it a couple times. Eventually, it will take. AirPlay is on my list, and it's high on the list because, and I, I in terms of, like, Canary in the coal mine because it used to be rock solid for me. And my typical AirPlay scenario is almost always is either from my phone or from an iPad to Apple TV. Uh, a, a good example of it is we didn't have uh, Amazon Instant Video on TV until we got a new TiVo sometime, like, I think, in the last year. And it has Amazon built in. Because Amazon, I, th- I don't know why, but they don't have an uh, app on Apple TV, whether it's politics or, or what. But if you wanted to watch something... Oh, on, it's definitely yeah, politics. Yeah, I'm guessing it's politics. Why do you think they're advertising my... watches so heavily to every man who visits the site? <laughs> Are they really? Yeah. Ask, ask, always... any, ask any man who visited Amazon recently, like, what's on the front page? And it's the bottom row, like, like the, the, the bottom of the first uh, screen on Amazon.com's front page is all top men's watches. I have never viewed a link to a watch on Amazon. I've never searched for a watch on Amazon. I have done nothing that would influence that recommendation, and it's it's heavily promoting watches. And I've heard I tweeted about it a couple weeks ago, and a bunch of other guys were like, "Yeah, me too." They showed screenshots like of all like yeah. they're so heavily pushing watches right now. It's like, come on, obviously this is about politics. Mine is uh, literally men's blue dial luxury watches. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm gonna send you the link right now. Right, and have you ever looked at a watch on Amazon? Uh, See, that's the thing. That's you why might, you might have already. Yeah, because I I don't own I only own two watches, but I love I've always loved watches, but it's like I only buy them if I think they're absolutely perfect, which is why I've only got two. Um, <laughs> but I look at watches all the time. I don't, and I don't really look for them on Amazon because Amazon I, I don't think is the type of place where I would buy a watch. Although I did actually I did buy one there years ago. I bought my uh, my Citizen there, but. Uh, no, I didn't. Actually, I did the right thing with the Citizen, where I found it on Amazon, but I wanted to see it in person, and I went to a jewelry store here in Philadelphia so I could see it, 
and it was $15 more expensive in the jewelry store. And I thought, well, this is exactly what I should do. I'm going to buy it right here because I, I'm so glad there's a jewelry store here where I could see it. You know, I wanted to give him 15 more dollars. Wow. You reversed showroom. That's great. Right. I know that that's like, and I thought, you know what? I'm like the, I'm not like the 1% like top financial people. I'm the 1%, you know, who shops thinking like that. Like (laughs) (laughs) the Amazon 1%. Yeah. Uh, It reminds me, there was a New Yorker a couple weeks ago, we're on the cover. There was a woman answering her door to take an Amazon box from UPS that was clearly like the size of the ones that they ship the books in looking awkwardly at her neighbor who runs a little neighborhood bookstore. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, But anyway, I do have men's blue dial luxury watches right on the front page of my Amazon. Right. So anyway, anyway, so Apple TV. So I had to, I, until we had the TiVo, I had to airplay Amazon to the Apple TV and it always worked. It just worked. It was great. And a couple days ago, I wanted to watch, um, Alpha House, which is a cool, a really fun show I like on Amazon. Uh, and I was too lazy to switch the TV from Apple TV, where I already was, to TiVo. And the TiVo is such a pain in the ass anyway. So I tried <laughs> to use an AirPlay. And, and it, I just got like a spinner, and it just spun and spun and spun and spun and spun. And eventually, I just did have to switch to the TiVo and use the Amazon app there. Yeah, that, that spinner I, should be the Apple TV logo. It and used to print work, one on the front. I, for me, it used to work very, very, very consistently. Where yeah, any any video that wasn't, you know, I, I think there's a flag you can set to say don't you can't airplay, but almost nobody said it back then. Almost any video that I could watch on iPhone or iPad, I could switch. I could just flick it continuity style to the Apple TV in I don't know how many seconds, but a few enough seconds that it felt like magic every time. And now it's really, really a crapshoot. Exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, I've owned every generation of Apple TV and I, we use them constantly because we don't have cable. Like that's the Apple TV is our primary video player. Uh, we are like, we, the only media playback we have in our house is Apple TV and a PS3 for Blu-ray discs. That's it. And so we use them heavily and it's, it, it has, it has definitely been a noticeable decline. Like the, they were, they didn't used to be this bad. And so again, we can sit here all night and point out things about the Apple TV. I mean, like, it's and which is I mean this is probably as interesting as hearing somebody's like terrible airline story or their or their dream from last night you know so I don't want to bore the audience with with all the different little nitpicks of like how my stuff has failed but you can look at a lot of their products recently and see a lot of stories like this uh, from everybody uh, Glenn Fleischman solicited things on Twitter and had a really good post like kind of summarizing like here's what everyone's complaining about oh did he um, I didn't see that where did he post that uh, on on glog dot com and uh, I think, yeah, check it. Anyway, uh, you can sort through his tweets for the last two days to try to find the link if, if you're brave. Uh, my Twitter client doesn't go back that far to carry <laughs> t- two days Sorry. of Glenn, Fleid- Glenn Fleischman tweets. So um, I don't know what client I don't know what client you use. I think you'd need like a special API. I don't even think the Twitter API can handle. It. Anyway, no, it, it is doesn't. on the front. It is on the front page of his blog, and I will put it in the show notes. Yeah, so do that, and then so so that that's part of it. Like, and I've I've had issues with um, with Yosemite. Uh, similar to like I, I know Nevin Mergen was talking uh, on Twitter a couple of uh, couple of weeks back about how, like he showed a screenshot of how many copies of his computer there were in the in the Finder source list of like the network share area of, of the Finder the Finder left pane and it mm. was like you know Nevin Mergen's laptop two three four five six and, like this giant list of like all these different copies like I've had a lot of issues with that of like 
things like losing my original computer's name, showing up as parentheses two, or certain computers just disappearing off my network. Like we have three computers on our home network here and one printer and and, and a, uh, a NAS box in the closet for network share stuff. And at any given time, I can usually only see between zero and two of them. Uh, and like, it, and it just like, usually you have to reboot, not the one that's browsing, but you have to reboot the one that's not showing up. I haven't it's read Glenn's article yet, obviously, since I was unaware of it, but I uh, can't wait to. But I don't know if his summary goes like this, but yours does so far, and a couple that I have jotted down all fit in the category of things that don't even have error. They're not crashers, and they don't have error messages, exactly. although you, they're, they're just silent failures. Exactly. Um, um, and and, so even, printing and, and there one, are some crashers, um, but usually, like, most people aren't hitting them most of the time, I think. Like, you know, like, there, there are, like, crashers are they're a bigger problem on ios i think um you know and ios 7 i think was worse than ios 8 in regards to crashes but so for instance on ios 8 um overcast crashes more than did an ios 7 in a few key areas and, and i don't know if it's my fault or not but i've heard from a lot of other developers too one developer even posted stats their app still runs on both and they posted stats like percentage of installs that have crashed on 7 versus 8 and the percentage on 8 was five times higher Huh. And like and, and like and I've had crashes like deeply deep in system frameworks like image IO I have crashes right. like decoding JPEGs for show art that crashes a lot on iOS eight it never happened on seven stuff like that like it, it, it and you know the the background downloading system occasionally has crashes the audio subsystem will crash and everyone will blame me for it there's there's so many like subsystem or API like low level failures or crashes that happen just rarely enough that it's really hard to ever track it down but frequently enough that if you have a crash logger in your app you're going to see a lot of reports for it um another one for me and i tweeted about this and i actually got somebody from apple reached out and they said they're going to look into it and but for me it's the the keyboard shortcuts not 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 command keys but like when you have uh teh go to te oh like the the texas panda ripoff yeah well i think that yeah, all right, yeah, the text expander reply. Well, okay, the the feature is similar to text expander. Go ahead. I think they did. I think that's a perfect example, though, of them adding a feature to the system in an appropriate way, where it still leaves text expander plenty of room. Oh yeah, because right? yeah. they just do. You you type this, you get that. Whereas text expander has all of the interactive stuff, where you can have you know. You know, like uh, forms almost with text expander. Yeah. yeah, or like I've got the text expander wants to put the date in certain formats. So right, I just right. type, you know, type my key, you know, my little shortcut, and I get today's date right the way I like it. You can't do that, you know, dynamic ones, variables. Right. right anyway, right. Um, but they they used to sync between devices, and then they stopped syncing, and they stopped syncing when I switched to the iCloud. Uh, Documents in the cloud beta or the drive, the iCloud the drive, drive yeah. beta, which I had to do over some. Well, I didn't have to, but I did over summer because I was beta testing some stuff that you know I wanted to use it and try it. And so the fact that it stopped working then, I understood because maybe they were using you know when they warn you, hey, when you switch, you can't go back. You know, you're always on it. And so I thought, oh, so that's interesting. They must have been using the old storage APIs for these keyboard shortcuts, and that's how they did it. But now, you know, here it was like two months after everything had come out of beta. You know, uh, I was running a new phone running iOS 9. I was running a new, uh, just just to make it even more likely that it should work, a brand new uh, 
Retina MacBook Pro running the non-beta, you know, version of Yosemite, and it's they still weren't syncing. None of nothing was syncing. None of the most shortcuts were syncing. Uh, and then, and this is this to me emblemizes the sort of thing I'm I'm thinking that you know is is the modern Apple unsteady software. They did start syncing, but not all of them. Ooh. And now, now, like on my phone and on my Mac, almost all of them are the same. And I definitely never once, because I wanted to see what would happen. I never once like said, okay, just take 10 minutes and reproduce them in both places so you have them all. I just waited, and they're mostly there. But there's one uh, in particular. It's sort of like a game of Where's Waldo, like scrolling the two lists, trying to find the ones that are missing. And it's even made more difficult because they sort in a different order um, in terms of the way ones <laughs> that terrible. the way that ones like regular if it's just alphabetical characters they sort alphabetically but the mac puts the ones with punctu leading punctuation at the top and the iphone puts ones with leading punctuation at the bottom uh so it's a little hard to compare See, again none of this is is a reportable bug like or rather none, none of this will report itself to apple yeah, and it's so hard. But I know, for example, I have a custom one because you can use it to add custom words. And it's not even like an expansion. But I use the word navbar as all one word, N-A-V-B-A-R, um, all the time when I'm talking with Dave Wiskus about Vesper. Uh, it's just I, I call the thing at the top the navbar. Um, and it's always, always on the iPhone, like when I be iMessaging, I'm auto-correcting it into who knows what. You know, it's just random guesses from the dictionary that were close. So I put it in my thing and it's on my phone, which is the place where I need it, but it's not on my Mac. Whereas like the other, I don't know, there's like maybe 30 of them seem mostly in sync. Crazy. Like I don't, and there's never an error message. There's never any, an error on a, any device that says, Hey, you've got a problem with your keyboards, shortcut syncing, turn it off, turn it back on again, or any, nothing, no errors. I just don't have some of them on both devices. Yeah, it's even worse with this cloud stuff because you have so little insight as to what the problem is, if there's even a problem, or how to fix a problem that once it happens. Uh, like, and so like, you know, if you if you look at if you look at Apple's um, you know crash rate history, you know, let's say somebody inside Apple is looking at like, well, you know, we we have the same rate of crashes now that we did five years ago, whatever you know, whatever it is. Um, I, I think you have to also consider that now. We are doing a lot more with our devices and our computers. We have more devices and computers interacting with each other per person, especially around in these crowds. And the 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 cloud services are this other factor. And so, like I, I, just, I said this on ATP, so I won't go too far into it here. But you know, if let's say you have like a like a one percent bug rate for like you know when you're using this app or this service of the OS. 1% of the time, it won't work right. Obviously, this is made up, but bear with me. Um, if then you, you consider the interaction of two different apps or services that have the same rate, it's 2%. If you consider it again, it's not 3 If you consider a third one, it's not 3%, it's 4%. Because these things don't add, they multiply. Because every as you add more possible ways of interaction between applications, services, cloud services, devices... All those failure rates, the chances that any one thing is going to go wrong somehow is the the multiple, the, the product of all of those factors, not the sum. So this grows geometrically. 
And so as you make things more complicated, as our devices can do more, as we have more devices interacting with each other and also interacting with the cloud services, all of these error factors are all multiplied. And so you have to, you can't just keep quality the same as it used to be. Like, you know, the, like the quality rate per service or per app, you, it has to actually get better over time to keep the same overall error rate from happening to somebody. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm not accusing anybody at Apple of incompetence because I don't think any of these bugs are like universal. It's not like nobody oh, no. can play AirPlay. I'm sure. And I've fact, written worse bugs today. I mean, like I, <laughs> I, I, would, I fixed a really embarrassing bug two hours ago in Overcast, like really embarrassing. I would bet good. I mean, that's how real bugs are. Real bugs are edge cases to some degree. Maybe that's a big edge, but it's, you know, something you didn't think of. Most <laughs> this is of the a big time. edge. Um, I'm thinking most of the time, I'm thinking if you go to an Apple store and buy a new Apple TV and you pick up a new iPhone or iPad and you set them up and create a brand new iCloud account and go to use AirPlay, it'll just work. It'll, I'm, I'll bet 99 times out of 100 that will just work. There's no bug that's keeping most people from doing it, but there's clearly some bugs that, you know, and who knows, it might be like a hundred different bugs, you know, that result in the same thing. And they're all, you know, just one tenth of one percent of people have taken that path. But then it, in the aggregate, it winds up where there's a lot of people who are having trouble, trouble with stuff like this. Exactly. And, and again, like so many of these things are hard to report or too minor to report individual problems like through the bug reporter system. Yeah. I mean, and, and the bug reporter system too is is about as hostile as it can be. Uh, they like if, if you go to actually report a bug on Apple's bug reporter, um, you'll be greeted first of all, is it still iOS six themed? <laughs> I think it is, right? Yeah. So you, Which was a greeted... big improvement over the Aqua theme it used to have. Well, they, used... they gave it the iOS 6 theme like three days before iOS 7 was unveiled. Remember <laughs> they, that? It had, but it had like a 10.0. <laughs> I know. You know like, like when... Uh, it was bad. When Aqua was really stripey. <laughs> it had the big the pinstripes, horizontal pinstripes for yeah. a long time. And yeah, they, they updated it to like an iOS 6 look. Right, right before iOS seven came out, it or was no, like not, it was like days or weeks before. It was yeah. hilarious. Like it was like obviously these two groups weren't talking to each other about that. And it, oh, anyway, uh, so you're greeted with this, you know, this this pretty terrible web app. First of all, um, and then and it asks you for like seventeen different fields, and then you fill your stuff out, and then you submit it, and they say, "All right, thanks. We'll look into it. Here's a number." And in most cases of bugs I've filed, I filed maybe, I don't know, 50 bugs so far in my life uh, with Apple. In almost every case, you will never hear about it again. They won't even tell you if it's a duplicate. They won't even tell you if it's closed. It'll sit there open forever. Sometimes they will tell you after like three months, this is a known bug. It's a duplicate of this other bug ID. Thank you. But then you lose all visibility. Then you can't tell when that other bug ID is closed. Like you just, they just basically close your bug saying, all right, thanks. <laughs> all right. I just logged into my radar account and here's one that I filed on the 20th of March, 2009 <laughs> state open rank, no value. And it's, here's what I said. I said, when you control, it said product Safari, when you control click, right click, 
on a background tab in Safari 4, you get a menu with options for things like creating a new tab, closing the tab, reloading the tab, and so forth. It would be nice if there were an option to copy the URL for that tab. That way you could copy the URL for a background tab in a background window without either activating that window or that particular tab. I think it's a reasonable request. Right. Still, I'm not saying it's great, but it's the fact that it's just there, green, <laughs> open. Yep. Still, like, still waiting for a response from Apple, and, and that's, and it's this is this is not uncommon. This this I, is the common case. I'm not mad that they haven't uh, done it. Actually, let me see. Nope, you still can't copy a tab. Nope, it's the same options that I listed. <laughs> so I'm not mad that they haven't taken my suggestion and done something. But that's what for everybody at Apple always tells me that's what I should do with an idea like that is file a radar. Right. Right. But the fact that it's open, like I wouldn't mind if they just said closed. No, we don't think that we don't think copy belongs in that menu. Okay. You know, thanks for considering the idea. It's the fact that it looks to me as though nobody has ever looked at it. Right. And Which, they probably never will until at some point some intern is tasked with going through that list and they just like bulk close them all or send like a like a form letter to, to all of them saying, all right, you know, is this still a problem? Please provide a sample project to illustrate the problem. Yeah. And then if you don't, this will automatically close in a day. Like that's like that's the kind of, of thing you get. I mean, uh, it's, it's just I mean, look, see, I have uh, so my oldest the... is 2011. I mean, I, 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 got, I have four bugs here in one of my accounts, 2011, 2011, 2013, all green, no responses. I mean, so this is, this is the problem I have with, 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 you know, the typical Apple answer is, well, please, you have to file a bug for any bugs you find or any feature requests you have or et cetera. If you're going to say that, if that's going to be your default response, this system has to be better. This system has to, it has to be less hostile and it has to somehow give some kind of satisfactory result even if it's as simple as after like a week you say you know thanks we took it into we're taking this into consideration or or we're gonna we'll have somebody look at this and then close it like some kind of something that indicates to the person who filed the bug that it was worth their time to have filed it and that's the problem right now you don't have that and so there's no incentive for individuals to file bugs if you think anyone else will have ever filed the same bug. Well, there's that the adage that insanity is doing the same thing over the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and and expecting different results. And yeah. it's, you know, that's there's it's you know, that makes a lot of sense. It's actually true. That's to me it seems almost insane to keep filing radars when you ex expecting them to de be dealt with when your experience is this is just a waste of my time. Exactly. And I've had so many people who work at Apple tell me, please file radars. They really do matter. They really do help. Please keep filing them. Yeah. And, and, and they all say, too, like they all say that they get a, a surprisingly low number of radars filed. For, you know, like, like you would expect certain things to have a lot. And they say, you know, certain feature requests or major feature requests will have like seven radars ever filed on them or something. Yeah. But the problem is like, you know, they're, they're yelling at us saying, please file bugs their their actions don't back that up like yeah. the, what we see on the outside is extremely hostile and and demotivating yeah i want hold that thought because i want to come back to that but it's, yeah. i want to come back to it with a big section but i'll do a break but before i take the break i just wanted to say another thing too was that your article the one of the things that had me nodding my head with your article as sort of yeah like now i kind of feel like one of them being like a windows user is um so we've got a laser printer here, and it's an HP 
and I'm pretty happy with the quality, and it does Wi-Fi. And yeah, you bought it, the same one I did, right? Uh, maybe I do. It's the CP1525NW. Yeah, it's one of HP's wonderful. Yeah, you you asked me what to buy, and I told you to get that yeah. one. Yeah, I did. I did. I did take my usual. Uh, just yeah. ask Marco. Yeah, and it exposes. Yeah, I still have mine. It works fine. It, it well, except when it, it dies. Except when it's, it disappears from my network for. And no it reason. lies. Oh, it lies so bad about how much toner it has left. It lies oh, yeah. like a thief in the night. Mine has been saying it has extremely low supply levels for about three years, and it's still printing just fine. I c it is telling me I'm low on color. I print color, I swear to God, like once a year, Jonas has like a school product <laughs> check that needs color. I print everything black and white. I know you've got plenty of color, you lying bastards. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, and you know what? With the black, it told me that I ran out of black, and eventually I really did run out, but uh, it was telling me, it was like, give me this error message, like, I've got no toner, none, nothing, and then the paper would come out, and it looks great. Yep. It just looks <laughs> great. And I know what, I, I've, from working at student newspapers and doing print graphic design for years before, I know what low toner looks like. It's pretty obvious. It's not a yeah. subtle change. Like, it's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, when, when, when your printer's actually running out of toner, it it looks like it, like yeah. it's, it's right there, right in your face. Like it looks exactly what it sounds like. It's exactly. like wow, it, I can hardly read this. The letters are almost right. Whispy. Everything's all spotted, and yeah, like you could definitely tell. Anyway, it exposes itself over bonjour, and that legal? so yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but so to set it up is really kind of easy, and I'm gonna have to say, and, and going back even further, the thing that cracked me up about the Business Insider headline is calling you a longtime Mac user. Or long-time Apple supporter? I don't know. It's like anybody who joined the team in 2003, you're not long-time. 2004. Um, I was even And I was still using Windows until 2005. Like, I was um, using them both for a while. One of the things that was never as good on Mac OS X as classic Mac OS was setting up printers. Like, in the old days, because, you know, and it used to be that you had to get, like, an Apple printer. Like, a, either one from Apple. Apple, believe it or not, used to make printers. Or, you know, like some kind of Apple compatible printer. But it always just worked. It was the, the maybe the, one of the canonical examples of the differences between Apple's it just works experience and the PC world. You never had to worry about drivers, anything like that. You just plug it in. There it is. Shows up in your chooser. You pick the printer and boom, it works. Like just it, it was never a problem. And in Mac OS X, I, always, I thought that just got worse. And it was sort of the shift to industry standard printers and sort of just the uh, that those underpinnings of Next were never as hooked up to, like, you know, the print world as Apple's classic Mac OS was. But anyway, it got better for a while. Um, this printer, when I first got it, was great. It's You go to the printer thing in system preferences and there it is listed you hit plus there it is listed it's like here's a bonjour printer is this the one you want yes there it is uh just the uh, last week i went to print something and it uh, you know and i ha it's the only printer i have the only printer i use i hadn't changed it and it just said it you know printer can't be reached or something and it, nothing would it just wouldn't come out like it was just the jobs were queuing up in that thing in the dock so I deleted it, I deleted the printer, and I went to re-add it, and it wasn't even listed. And in the old, and I, you know what I did? I just thought, ah, screw it, I'll print from Amy's. And I like went to, emailed it to Amy and printed from Amy's computer. Uh, and it worked. And then I, and I just left it at that. And I realized when I read your article that in the old days, like three, four, five years ago, when I, I would have instantly thought it's got to be the printer, and went upstairs and just turned the printer on and off. 
And in fact, that actually worked. I did after, you know, it was your article that made me test it. I went up, turned the printer off, turned it back on, and then boom, it just worked. Just reconnecting it to my Mac. So it was the printer's fault. But in the old days, I would have just assumed it was the printer's fault, whereas now I thought, ah, screw it, something's wrong with Yosemite. I think, well, I've had the, uh, the same issue, and it's, it's, it's like I have the same issue with other Yosemite Macs that are on the network. So I think it's it's an issue with like with Yosemite losing its 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 connection to the printer, like losing its discovery of the printer. Like so, Yosemite mm. they 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 rewrote so, some part of the networking uh, stack. I don't know the details, um, but they they basically combined some of the discovery and and uh, and that related stuff into this new thing called Discovery D. Yes, and uh, and people keep reporting a lot of Wi-Fi and and network discovery issues with Yosemite. It's probably related to that because they changed a bunch of that to enable things like continuity and handoff and stuff like that, and airdrop to the mat like between the two. So that stuff all changed in Yosemite. So that's most likely the source of these problems. Yeah. So my my spidey sense that it was Yosemite probably is right. It's just that yeah. the solution of turning the printer off and on probably isn't even HP's fault. It no, it almost certainly isn't because like I have the same problem with every Mac on the network. Hmm. Well, I believe it. a lot of networking problems in in general. And like, again, not one networking issue, but just, you know, Hockenberry's description of it as a thousand paper cuts is exactly right, is a big chunk of them seem to be networking. And networking is hard. I mean, like, you know, this is like, as you said earlier, like, like, I don't like we know Apple has great people working for them. We know that these aren't idiots doing this. Uh, But, you know, the, the fact is, like, you know, my point in the piece was they're doing too much. And, and it's really starting to show, like, it, it always feels like we're using, a, like, a 1.0 release or a beta. Like, there used to be some kind of stability between betas and, and, the, and the GMs. It was never perfect. But there used to be, like, a differentiator, like, okay, well, stuff's going to stop changing right before the GM by some interval of time. And the GM will be a higher degree of quality than the betas were. And then a couple revisions down the line, once you have like a 0.3, 0.4 kind of range, it'll be really stable for the next you know year and a half until they release a new major version. If you treat it, it used to be, I think, for for a number of years, and I would say it probably covers the years, your early years on the platform, like that 2004 to 2008-ish, 9-ish yeah. period. If you just had the conservative patience to treat every release as like minus one, you do pretty well. So in other <laughs> right. words, trust that the betas are going to suck and trust that the GM is really just a beta. And then trust that the 1.0 release of the OS is really like a public beta. <laughs> and wait for like the first major public update after the 1.0, you know, after system, you know, iOS 5.0 ships. Wait for 5.01 or maybe 5.02 and you'll have a really solid OS. Exactly. And and these days it feels like we never reach that point of like a few point X's in and and now it's stable. Like now we're always in the beta 1.0 1.1 loop it seems. And yeah, I know like you know technically version wise they've they've passed 1.1 with some of these but like it it just seems like yeah. we and any and the GMs seem so minimally different from the betas in terms of quality like it even seems, worse than they used than they used to be like it seems like we're just always in beta now seems like they're they only get around to fixing the crashers you know the big ones right and they never get around to the cleanup and it's guy english's point 
that the annual cycle means that, and you know, we're probably hitting that point right now where a lot of engineering talent at Apple is probably going towards the WWDC releases of what I, you know, are, I'm guessing will be iOS uh, nine, nine, yeah. and system ten point eleven. Exactly, like this cycle, it doesn't leave time for stability really it doesn't leave time for all those boring little bug fixes to be applied to the old ancient version that we're all still using because it nothing ever gets that old yeah uh let me take a break and thank our second sponsor and it is your and my everybody's very good friends at squarespace you guys know squarespace it's the all-in-one platform where you can host build design create your website you need a website, you go to Squarespace, and you have a website. It's that easy. You get to pick your domain name. You get to pick from a bunch, including a whole bunch of new ones, themes. You get to edit the content right there in your website. When you're logged in, you can just drag the stuff around, add the components you want. So many presets to choose from. Uh, and they have a brand new Squarespace 7. That's the latest version. You can go to squarespace.com slash 7. Spell it out like the movie, S-E-V-E-N, uh, and see all the new stuff. Because you guys know, we talk about Squarespace all the time. They sponsor shows for years. Uh, so you're familiar with it. Go to that what URL, slash 7, at their site and find out the new stuff. But at the highlights, they've got integration with Google Apps. That's huge for people who are using this with uh, companies that you know use Google Apps. Uh, They've redesigned their whole interface. Uh, they have a partnership with Getty Images now, so you can get stock photos and images right there from within the Squarespace interface, new templates, um, things like cover pages, so you can have like a splash screen. Splash screens are back. Uh, and probably best of all, the best thing that they have, I think, isn't even technical. It's their tech support 24-7, all hours, all days. You can get tech support via live chat and email. Uh, and the whole thing, it starts at eight bucks a month. You just can't lose. Uh, and you get, I forget how much, I don't know, what is it, a month? What do you get, a month free? The trial? Yeah, they don't even tell you. Yeah, they is. don't even tell you. You start. I think it starts out with as a week, but then like when you hit that week, they'll send you an email saying, hey, do you want, it? Do you want more time? And you just click a link and they give you like another week. Yeah, they, um, that's how confident they are that you're going to stick with it because once your free trial is over, eventually, um, you're going to be like, I'd be nuts to leave. This is great. You do it with no credit card required. Just go there and start creating a website free. So the URL to know that they came from the show is squarespace.com slash Gruber. Uh, and the code when you sign up is my initials, JG. I don't, I don't know why they don't match up. But it's that code that you need. You need to keep that in mind because it really doesn't matter what you do when you sign up. Go there. Just go to squarespace.com and sign up because you're going to get a free trial. You'd be Why pay? You know, Take the free trial to start. It's when the free trial is over, you got to remember the code, JG. Uh, and when you use that code, you'll save 10%. So not only will you help support the show, uh, but you'll save some of your own money as well. So my thanks to Squarespace. Uh, if you need a website, you're nuts if you don't look at Squarespace first. That's my new slogan for Squarespace. 
I gotta have you do all my ad reads. So much better. At I it. like yours. I like the one because you actually had this story about your kid's school, where uh, the preschool or whatever, and they were yep. gonna spend seven thousand dollars on a website. Three, I think it was three. It was three or thirty five hundred. Oh, I don't 3, know. But 000, it's, so, yeah, anybody and if you everybody knows there is not a schools don't have money to burn. It's, it's no. Just, this <laughs> is like a little co op preschool. Right? Like, it, like this is not a like they don't have money. It is me. like the kudos to you for being an involved parent at the school, but you were like. Like, uh, will you give me like two days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you took like two days and build them a website, and now they two pay... hours and <laughs> now they pay eight dollars a month. For... Yeah, instead of three thousand dollars. Which for a website that let's face it, and who knows who they were going to pay the thirty five hundred to? But you know what? It was probably going to suck. Anyway, I love that story. That was great. Yeah, it's such a clear win for Squares, yeah. and now and like. I'm not even the person who's responsible for keeping the website updated. Somebody else does that. Yeah. And so it's important to like have something that they can use that isn't like my crappy CMS or some really complicated WordPress install. And then if they need support, I'm not their their tech support. Squarespace is their tech support. Yeah, so like I'm totally out of it. Like I did my job, my job is done, my hands are clean, and they and it's all like their system now that they can do whatever they want to, and when they have a question, they can get support from Squarespace and not me. It's perfect. Yeah. Ten years ago, it, that same story might have been you know that you would have said hey hey and then go sign them up for like an eight dollar a month hosting account and put up an install of wordpress and pick a theme and do this and get like mostly the same thing but that you're exactly right though then like like six months later and you're reading tech meme and there's like a big uh, vulnerability in wordpress that was exposed and you're like i don't think that's cool that's cool you know there's no way they know oh and it's on you, like right. whether you just like silently whistle and let the school keep going or whether now you're, <laughs> you know, you're permanently on the hook for being like the, you know, the guy right. who's going to fix it. Or they're like, hey, you know, we want to add another widget to the sidebar. Can you do that for us? Because there's no clear way for them to do it. You know, stuff like that. Like, it's just it's so much better to just outsource this to Squarespace. And I, be the the other it. thing I love about that anecdote of yours is I feel like it perfectly exemplifies why Squarespace advertises the way that they do, that the way that they advertise over and over and over again on shows like ours never used to make sense to me. But I think it's so that, you know, it, how many people really need to make a website right now? Who knows? Probably very few. But how many over the course of the next year are going to find themselves in a situation where they do need to make a website? And at that moment, if they first thing they think of is Squarespace, boom, they go there. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it works out very well for them that way. Right. It's not about needing a website while you're listening to it on the show. It's seeding it in your mind so that when you hit that situation where your school wants to spend $4,000 on a website, that you say, uh, no, don't do that. Um, I want to go back to what you were talking about. And, and here's the I have this in my notes here for the show and talk about dev relations. And I think it's a big part of the problem that we're talking about here. And I think Apple's developer relations is overwhelmed. Now, I don't know the numbers, and so it's the ballpark figure. Um, but for talking with somebody at Apple, they their rough estimate is that uh, Microsoft's dev, developer relations team is somewhere in between 10 and 50 times larger than Apple's. And yeah, I, I believe said, that. 50? And he was like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And if you're like a serious, and you might know more about this than I do. I've never been a, I've never written a goddamn line of code for uh, Windows. But, you know, the, the basic idea is if you're a professional developer and doing some kind of serious work on Windows, you can get 
the attention of somebody competent and who can get stuff done on their developer relations team. And so if you're being driven up the wall by this obscure bug in a framework, um, you can get, you may not get a solution right away. You may, and you certainly may not, you know, it's, you may not get a, a version of windows release that has a fix for it right away, but you can at least get somebody's attention to get it in front of the right people. And it doesn't feel like when you're reporting things to Microsoft, it doesn't feel like you're, you know, just filing things into a black hole. And that Apple's developer relations, not that they're not well-meaning, but that they're just overwhelmed, absolutely positively overwhelmed. And it's, it's like Microsoft's developer relations team is of a size that is appropriate for a company that had and saw as its rightful place that 90 some percent of all software in the world is written for it. And Apple's developer relations is still of a scale of a company that has like three or 4% of the software in the world. Well, also and, like the, the whole structure of how, like how it's set up with the public or with the developers is radically different. Uh, now, I mean, I don't know how Microsoft is set up, but, but the way Apple's is set up is, is, uh, it's fairly hostile at first. Like Apple appears to just be this brick wall that you have no way in. Like there's, there is nowhere on, as far as I know, I don't think there's, there's like, you know, a list uh, or an email address to say like, Hey, ask a developer evangelist a question. Um, so I, I just, I, I just searched. Um, Cause I, I've always wondered like, is there a public list anywhere of who the Apple evangelists even are? And if you search Google for Apple developer evangelists, nowhere on on the first page is anything from Apple. Um, there's there's a GitHub gist where somebody else, some random person, just compiled the list from WBDC and <laughs> and has and, and there's a bunch of question marks on it too. <laughs> um, like this, every every year at WBDC, um, you you can always tell like in, in the first few days if you look around some of the bigger sessions. The very last slide, they will show the presenter's name, their email address, and their title. That is usually the first time you see their title. It is almost certainly the first time you see their email address. And you look around the room, and when that, that slide is on screen for about eight seconds, and you see half the room racing to write down that email address. Taking pictures of it. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. See, I, I've noticed that in recent years now that right? everybody has an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. Because like that's like the, that's like the first time that, you, that most people see like oh my god there's an email address from somebody who works in apple in the developer group somewhere that i can contact plus i think people worry rightfully that they want to write it down or get a picture of it now because who knows if they're going to cut it out of the published version of the right. video because right? they, cut, they cut a lot out of those videos right um, they cut mistakes out who knows they cut, if mistakes they, out, who they, knows? cut they cut out laughter and applause they, they cut right. out a lot like if all of a sudden this guy gets overwhelmed with email, maybe that you know they're going to take his email out. So you better get, get it down while you can. I, right. I've, I I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. And I like, think it's and a, that's weird. Like the, 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 if these people's job is to interact with the public, with the developers at least, with the developer public about these frameworks and these areas of, of development, there's no list on Apple's site anywhere that lists them. Like that's weird, isn't it? I I don't think that it's malice i don't think it's that they don't mean well i and in fact the people i know in apple developer relations for the most part are great people 
And at least I, I've never met anybody who's like I would call unpleasant. I would say no. they're really sharp. I think that they are overwhelmed, though. I think that they – I'm sure they've staffed up somewhat. But I think for the most part, they're of a basic magnitude that was appropriate for Apple 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And now they're one of, if not the most popular developer platform in the world, and they're just overwhelmed. Again, the number that I heard from somebody, again, a rough estimate, but that Microsoft's team is 10 to 50, 10, 10 to 50 times larger. Yeah. I mean, it's entirely like, different. Magnitude. And this, this list on GitHub of who the evangelists are at Apple has like 12 people on it. <laughs> it's a pretty small list. <laughs> so, uh, and like, and, you know, they are, you know, if they're overwhelmed, that would explain a lot because, you know, even like there's there's developer um, relations managers or, or representatives. Like people will say, that, "Oh, I talked to a developer rep or my developer rep." Um, I don't know how you go about getting a developer rep for the first I don't know five years that I had an app in the app for all of Instapaper and all of the magazine. I never I I could never find one. No one ever contacted me. I didn't have a developer rep if if that even is a thing. Um, it wasn't until uh, Overcast that somebody somebody emailed me from you know some press thing like they reached out, um, and so it wasn't really until that that I had like a, a contact that I could email at Apple to like ask a question to or to bring a concern to. Like it was like it wasn't until last year, like uh, and I've been in the App Store since 2008. Uh, and and when I when I mentioned this to the person, they with, let's just and let's not mince words with some success. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's again I'm not you know it, you know you, it's not like you wrote YouTube but you know pretty popular apps right and and yeah it didn't matter um, and and when I mentioned this to this person that I had never found any contacts in developer relations before, they were like they were surprised like really are, are you sure like that that really like that's like. They were even surprised at that, but like, I don't think the people in the developer relations division, like, I don't think they have a good idea of how it looks from the outside, of of how how the developer relations system and how Apple as a whole appears to and communicates with developers who are not in with somebody. The gist of it, what I've heard, and I believe it, and it d definitely plays on developer relations, but they're so overwhelmed, developer relations, that the reps are just, and they're not, and not known, and hard to initiate contact with, and even once they do, it just never becomes a priority, that the whole internal, I, I'm going to call it radar, but I, maybe it's, maybe that's not just, maybe radar is just the database, but the whole radar system is entirely geared internally toward fixing bugs from within Apple itself, right? So if you're on, if you're writing, if you're one of the engineers on pages and you run into a text kit bug, it gets taken care of exactly as you would think. And it goes up the post and it gets put in front of the right person and they run your example project and say, oh, I see and fix it. And then, you know, it just works. It's all, but it's, it, there's nothing like that from the outside. Like it's like 99% internal and like 1% external. And I'm not saying the balance should be 50-50. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, you know, obvious that, of course, Apple's going to fix their own bugs first. But it's it's just not even close. And it's not even like, oh, poor us, poor third-party developers, we're not getting our bugs fixed. It's These are things that affect users, everybody. You know, the bug we're, we're fighting for these bugs because they affect the experience of the users. 
Right, exactly. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know how you solve this problem except by making certain parts of Apple much bigger. And that's obviously not an easy thing to do. Like, you know, there are all the, like, Mythical Man Month kind of things. Like, I th- you, know, and you I can't think it's a staff up. I think it's a scary thing for them to do, too, because, yeah. you know, they've seen it over the, you know, everybody's seen this industry for 20 years. And everybody knows that Microsoft got a lot bigger and then it got it got slow and lumbering. Right. And, and they also, you know, they're going to have trouble staffing up possibly because when you work for Apple, you have, you know, you have to, first of all, you have to be there. Like they don't do remote work for most things. They, they have a couple of remote offices for certain like isolated projects, but for the most part, they don't do remote work. So you have to be there. They're competing with everyone else in the Silicon Valley region for top talent. And that is, that is extremely competitive. Uh, and and I would imagine they probably have trouble retaining a lot of these good people because like, like I mean you know we know tons of tons of like our friends and people we knew at Apple who like they were at Apple for a while and then they want to go out and try being an iOS developer or being being a Mac developer themselves like independently because when you're in Apple you can't really have side projects. Yeah, and it's funny. I bet being a developer relations uh, rep is even more easily right. poached because your whole job is reaching out to other people. And they're going to be like, "Wow, you're awesome! Why don't you come work for us?" Right? Yeah, I bet like, it happens. You and, know? Yeah, and, and if if you're if you are if you're like an iOS expert who has worked for Apple, that's a pretty good qualifier. Yeah. I would imagine it makes you pretty valuable on the market. So I I expect that they probably have a lot of trouble first attracting and then retaining great talent there, in addition to any cultural issues that and challenges that would come with trying to grow the company substantially larger. So, but but I don't really see a way around that being the eventual outcome. Like, I don't think they can keep the company the current size. And I know they also have issues with, like, they don't have the space. Like, that's why they're building this giant new campus. Like, they're out of room, too. But, you know, it's it, there's all these problems. But, you know, these problems aren't just going to disappear. Like, they, and I, 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 I think they are working towards that. I hope they're working towards that. But I think there's going to be some uncomfortable migration, uncomfortable growth as the company becomes a bigger organization. But I think it has to be. Yeah, I, th- I think people are third party developers are exercising things that just don't get exercised within Apple. You know, um, I would say like the extensions are a perfect example of that, uh, like the sharing extensions where Apple knew what they would be used for. But the things that Apple itself really wants in there, they were already there anyway. Because if Apple is collectively agreed, hey, this should be in the sharing extension for everybody, then it was built into the system's sharing panel. It was only when third-party developers started doing it. But that thing is so full of little tiny bugs, like the way that when you reorder them, the order doesn't mm-hmm. stick. And there's you know just a bunch of little things like that. You know, It's just a perfect example of something that, did, to me, doesn't quite work right. Right, and and there was there's a couple of little like little limitations that end up having pretty big ramifications. Um, I believe it was Brian Irace of Tumblr made a nice blog post right before iOS eight came out, listing like all the little challenges that they had with the Tumblr yes. extension. It and was he, Brian and he, Irace. Yeah, and yeah. he he did the right thing. He he reported them all as radars and listed all the radar numbers in the post and everything. Um, but you know, like they they actually like I remember well. I don't know if that's public. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so what like, we learned building the iOS Tumblr iOS share extension. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it will be in the show notes. 
so we have we have you know the system itself it has bugs it has all these limitations it's you know that's got to get better and you know hopefully it will over time it probably will but i think you know and and all the stuff around the app rejection is pretty substantially worse too like all the rejections around this i i think what we're seeing is the the policy from apple is pretty clear the policy is the the implied policy rather is keyboards should not contain anything that isn't a keyboard like you know it shouldn't be able to do anything that is not like text entry you know it shouldn't be it shouldn't have any other cool features built in like a calculator built into your keyboard like they obviously like this is the implied rule your keyboard should only be a keyboard of some sort no no extras can't put a version of desert golfing in as a keyboard correct similarly your today view your today extension or widget whatever they're called your today view should or or must be in general a quick glance kind of thing it shouldn't be the place where you spend time it shouldn't be a place where you complete a long-running task it should just be a quick view those are the implied rules but they won't come out and say that like they they won't codify that and say this is the rule it's a high level rule this should only be used for this like that's clearly what they want but what they're saying instead is well we're going to try to draw the line exactly where like more precisely where this should be more lower level and they're going to say well you can't have buttons that launch your app or you can't complete the task or you can't have too many buttons or you can't have this kind of button or you can't simulate a keyboard in your today you like they try to come up with all these little tiny explanations of lower level implementation detail rules but that's clearly not like those are all just you know that that is somebody not wanting to state the real rule the higher level rule which is this system is intended only for this you can you're only allowed to do this and that it's just not i don't know i don't know why they won't just say the higher level rule because i think that would actually generate less controversy and would be easier for developers to follow and to know like certainly some developers would be like well does this count but you know you see the high level rule and that would that would at least give you some idea like if I stray from this, it's going to be rocky territory and a re- and a rejection risk. I I think the app store stuff definitely plays into it. I don't know how different that is from typical dev relations, but it ought to be tied up because it's in Apple's view the app store is and for iOS it absolutely is the only way, other than the enterprise stuff. Um, you know, it's the only way. It's it's an inextricable part of the development process. So app store problems should be considered developer relation problems. It, the whole thing, like with the pan, the recent things, panic has gone through, and like where they had the the issue with their uh, uh, saving feature in Transmit, where you know they didn't want them to be able to save to iCloud Drive, and therefore they had to take the whole thing out because even the stuff that hooks up to Dropbox and Box.net, because there's no control over that. Um, and then you know I wrote about it. A couple other people wrote about it, and then all you know, saner saner minds prevailed. And okay, they got it fixed. And there's this whole angle that everybody agrees on. Everybody that you shouldn't have to have you know, daring fireball publish it to get your story fixed. You shouldn't have to go public to get that, and you shouldn't have to be of the um, prominence of panic. To do that, you know, like some upstart who nobody's heard of yet should be able to get this, you know, the same reasonable correction with an app store problem that Panic got. Um, right, and and they have they have the appeal system set up there 
So, like, in theory, this sh- it should work. You should be able to go to the appeal, which, like, you know, from what I understand, so, you know, the, you have the reviewers on one level, and from what I understand, the appeal doesn't just go to the same people. It goes to, like, a level above those people. And so if some reviewer just made a bad call, the appeal should work. The system that's in place there should work. The question is, why doesn't it work as well yeah. as running to the press? Like, right. running to the press and making a big stink yeah, that's going to work just by the way PR works. That, that's going to work a little bit better, you know, on occasion. But it shouldn't work so much better. It, it shouldn't be like, like, and and in Panic even said, I mean, in Panic will say these things in the nicest way possible because, you know, they don't want to start any any stuff. But, but you know, they even said, like, it's unfortunate, but, you know, this method is what works. Yeah. And we've gotten, at QBranch, we've gotten bugs fixed because we know people who work on the framework that, we're having the problem with and we could you know i think literally at at wwdc brent had like coffee with somebody and showed the example project which he had already submitted months ago in a radar you know here's a simple 13 line example project that shows the bug exactly but he got to show it to a guy from the framework team right in his face you know not not a confrontational you know brent but it was like drinking you know drinking coffee at the hotel bar and the guy was like oh i see oh i bet i know what that is and he like you know made a note of it and but you shouldn't have to know somebody and have coffee with an engineer you know it's just because brent knew the you know knew him for years that 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 doesn't scale to say that that doesn't scale is you know self-evident right i mean so you have in the re- the reality of the iOS ecosystem and, and the Mac, the, the reality of the Apple dev ecosystem is that you have the official channels up that are just this tremendous wall and filter. And, you know, and what you said earlier makes sense that they are extremely understaffed in these areas or, or they, they're not scaling very well. That that explains a lot because it seems like where the general public is is shown to go is just a wall that is extremely ineffective, has very few ways in. Uh, and it is just very off-putting, and and just it, you know they're they're trying to deflect everyone. It, it's like when you call a big company and you get put on hold for thirty-five minutes on some touchstone menu that really wants you to follow self-help options. Like they don't want you to get in through the public way because they can't handle it all. Then you have all of us going through like the side door because we know somebody, and that ends up working better. That's not good. Like. That, that, sh- that should be embarrassing. That should be yeah. a major problem they need and to I, fix. And it seems like something they could fix because, you know, like, and again, I think the biggest problem is what you said, which is just that hiring talented people in general is hard and it's especially hard in the Valley. Um, but, you know, guess what works? Money. And guess what Apple has? They have money. Right. So I, I, I can't help but think it is fixable. Um, well, and, you know, there, who's I to think, say they have to always keep everybody in Cupertino? Right. right, like they think, like there are parts of their business that can be easily on at some other location. Like I work is in Pittsburgh. Like right. they, they, like there are parts of Apple's business that can be other places. And and I think I think Gus was saying they're opening up an office in Seattle. Yeah, wasn't it? So like it looks like they might be starting to be more willing to branch this out a little bit. But yeah, and I think the Seattle office is going to be cloud stuff. That's, I don't know. Yeah, that's the rumor. I don't know if we I don't know if we have any good info on that yet. But yeah. but uh, yeah, so like. I I think um, you know they 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 need to start breaking down some of these barriers with themselves of like the way they the way they've always done things or the or the kind of the, or the rules they have internally. Like if they say everyone has to work on site, you, you better make more sites because in more places because 
that's like they have to become a bigger company. There are so many areas where they are clearly understaffed or under resourced, and as you said, it's not for money. Like it's it's not because of money, as far as we can tell. Unless they foresee a, a near term future where they're not going to have so many third party developers, and I I don't see how they could possibly think that because it doesn't see I don't see how that's possible. Um, they they really need a bigger developer relations team, much bigger, like factor of factor of ten. Uh, with not just headcount, but with authority within the company to to get issues escalated and put in front of the right people. And as this week has gone on, and this has been the topic of the week, I'm thinking my my thinking has shifted more and more that it's a lot more a developer relations problem and a lot less due to what I initially had been thinking for a long time, which is the annual release cycle of the two OSs. Well, I think this is two different problems. I mean, <laughs> I do too. I think certainly... And I think there's, I think it's, you know, it's clearly multivariable. And those are both definitely two of the variables. Absolutely. But my thinking has shifted in terms of which one is a, a bigger problem. And I think too, which one, to my eyes, meshes with the timeline of what I'm seeing. I've, you know, I think that it's as iOS has gotten more complicated and therefore there are more things that could go wrong. Uh, and as the, to, the, the ratio of developers to developer relations people within Apple has gotten more and more absurd, that correlates to me, to my eyes, with the shift in quality. And Maybe. again, I, I think Hockenberry nailed it. It's like loose screws. It's the software equivalent of loose screws. Yeah, just like sloppy little flaws that aren't fatal, but yeah. I mean, and the I think these problems are intertwined. You know, like like it's hard to it's hard to say. Well, developer relations is responsible for a general decline in quality in Apple software and services. Right. But it's, that's too simple. That's way too simple. Right. And that's but, why. But I, you, I would, you can look at certain parts. You, you can say like, well. If they're if they're saying that they're not seeing more bugs being reported, and therefore they don't know what problems to fix, they don't have enough information to fix them. Why aren't more bugs being reported? And then you can start following that rabbit hole, and be like, oh well, actually, this is related to developer relations, or related to the to the bug reporter system, or related to the what the image Apple has among developers and the personality. Like, because the the personality of individual people within Apple I've I've spoken with or that I know couldn't possibly be more different than the public persona of Apple. The public yeah. persona of Apple is, as I said, it's, it's a brick wall, and it's, it's pretty terse, and it's pretty unwelcoming to developers uh, and, and to public input of any kind, really. Yeah. But the, the individual people I, I've met and spoken with at Apple are the complete opposite. They're, they're friendly, normal people. They're a lot of our friends. Like, so well, why is that disconnect there? And, and they take can, enormous pride in their work. Like yeah. if you can't, if you are lucky enough to get your bug in front of the person who can, like an engineer who can fix it, they're they're going to take care of it. They are offended by any and all bugs, right? Because they're good engineers. Like, so so what is the disconnect here? Is it a process issue? Is it a policy issue? Is it just like inertia going in the wrong direction in certain things? I don't know. But the the issues at Apple are. It's seemingly seemingly deep rooted. It's something that's like not budging, you know. Mm. Like some some part of the culture inside, or the or the process, the way things are done, is it needs to be modernized, and and it hasn't been yet. And th and that's not an easy thing to do, you know. That's I mean I don't know anything about big companies, but I wonder how much too that the historical 
artifacts of the size of their developer relations team being relatively small. How much of that relates to not just the fact that 10, 15, 20 years ago, Apple was A, a smaller company, B, had far fewer users, and C, had far fewer developers, but also with the peculiar nature of the third party to, to, to modernize, peculiar to our current eyes, of that it was dominated by just like three or four huge companies, Adobe, Microsoft, uh, you know, go so far, right. the, uh, Macromedia, uh, you know, just a hand, you know, maybe more than four or five, but you know, that you just 10, 11, 12 big, big developers who I think, and by all accounts that I've heard, you know, did have, you know, uh, like platinum card developer relations treatment from Apple and that they were, they're sort of built up for that sort of world. Yeah, and that that's that's a very very good point. I mean, it's it, and it seems like a lot of Apple. Like even if you look at like the SVP roles, you know why why is the entire developer relations system under the head of marketing? Why is the entire cloud infrastructure system? Why is the same guy responsible for the entire cloud infrastructure system and also negotiating deals with record labels? Like the like, I I think they need. They need to get wider as an organization. They need like more divisions, and they need each. They need some of these divisions to have like you know more more power at the top or more say. And you know like like that's what like I said. I, I tweeted a while ago. Like if you want to see um, app areas where Apple doesn't do so well, look at which SVPs have way too much on their plate. Yeah. Well, I and, think and, we... and again, and I don't think it's like personal. Like, I, I, like I don't think Phil Schiller and NDQ are you know weak at their jobs. I'm saying like. If that's the way the organization is structured, where all these things are under like, you know, the like fairly disparate things are under one organization with one person representing them at the top, I think that's too much on their plate. Yeah. If anything, it's that they're effective at their jobs. I mean, I mean, it was it was explicit. It was a rare instance where they publicly said, um, like when they added maps to Eddie Q's plate, it you know. That usually they don't make announcements like that publicly, but the right. whole forestall thing was, you know, had to be done somewhat publicly. And the explanation was Eddie, you know, gets stuff done. So Maps needs stuff done. So now it's Eddie's. And, at, you know, truth be told, Maps has gotten significantly better. Yeah. People still, people point to Maps. Maps is a bad example, in my opinion, because Maps is a product that I think is clearly headed in the right direction. Is it possible that it could be headed in that direction faster? I guess. Of course, you can always do somewhat better. Um, and is it is it as good quality wise as Google Maps? No, but that's I think that's mainly because Google still has the pedal to the metal on Google Maps, and Google is improving Google Maps at a very quick rate. And so, Apple Maps might lag behind it for years to come until they sort of get to the, you know, the point of diminishing returns where they're both you know as close to perfect as they can get. Um, I think Maps is a bad example because I think they're getting a lot better at Maps. Well, I I disagree with with the with the chances of Maps being you know eventually tying up with Google Maps because it, like those kind of large big data problems, Apple has never shown that they're very good at them. Uh, they they where where I think Apple gets a bum rap um, is is the general cloud services. Term. I think Maps today, Apple Maps today, is already better than Google Maps was a few years ago. I'm not quite sure how many a few. Mm, is. I don't know about that. But I get, I get, I used to get bad, dri bad driving directions from Google Maps. Uh, you know, it was always better. It was just like with search, where I was. I, I, I guess I used MapQuest before, and right when I switched to Google Maps, it was like this is better. 
and it wouldn't do stupid things like getting me from my house to, you know, I-95. It's like, you know, gave me reasonable directions um, for the first few steps of a trip. Uh, in my experience, I mean, again, this is the sort of thing where everybody, depending on where you live, might be having different results. But I think Apple Maps is already better than Google Maps used to be some number of years ago. It's not as good as Google Maps is today, but it's it's getting there. I like I don't think that it's I, I think it's already good enough that it's proof that they can do a large data set problem to some degree of quality. Maybe I don't know. Then I look at App Store search and I cry. Um, yeah. I, I but I, I think overall. Well, that's know, a, Apple... see now that is a great example. I, yeah. Let's forget about Maps. <laughs> but App Store search is a great example of something that's always been shit is still shit and there's no evidence at all that they're getting better at it or that they've hired anybody you know so to me the solution is so obvious just find someone who's done a good work at like bing or google search and hire a team of engine you know poach a team of engineers with experience at one of the successful search engines i i think the problem there is you know, in general, the, the app store, like the store itself, not like the politics that go on behind it, but like the store itself, the interface to the store, the the infrastructure that runs the store, uh, the, the store apps themselves, the categories in the store, the, the ability that the store pages have, like the different fields, the descriptions, you know, like all this stuff, that stuff changes incredibly slowly. A lot of it has never changed. Uh, it Like it, it, the app store, it, it seems like... The install button for... The Yosemite App Store still looks like uh, the old Mac OS. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 the boy, the if you think the iOS App Store app is is a little rough around the edges, the Mac App Store app is pretty rough. That's that's been a, a frequent source of bugs. Um, it's it's just it's just rough. It, the the iPhone one is the least bad. The iPad one is kind of pretty bad, and the Mac one is really bad. Uh, but anyway, like all that stuff, it, it seems like. I don't think this is an instance of like this team needs 50 more engineers. I think it's an instance of Apple thinks this is good enough. And and that's that's what frustrates me about the App Store and and its various quality issues. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, the policies in this case. I'm actually talking about the store, like the actual App Store itself. Um there are so many things they could do that would make it better that they seem to think they don't need to do. But but overall though, I, I, I think Apple's cloud services get a bum rap. I think if you look at what what we do on our Apple devices that rely on Apple's cloud services, uh most of it just works fine. And it's again, it's that error rate multiplier thing. Like the the edges stick out and then we all scream and say Apple's cloud services suck. But the reality is like most of them, like the the biggest as far as I know, what I would expect at least the the biggest Apple Cloud service is the system that delivers push notifications and iMessage. And that works extremely well. And if you think about the scale that that's operating on, that's insane. Like the 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 amount of messages that get delivered and like all my interactions with that service as a developer, like the the servers that that take in push requests are just lightning fast. Like it it will take requests as quickly as your network can stream them to it. It it and it it never fails. I've never had a connection error reported by any of those tasks that run on my servers, like at least one that wasn't my fault <laughs> on my network. Uh, it, it is ridiculous how well that system works. Uh, from what I've heard, CloudKit works. I mean, I haven't used it yet, but when I've heard CloudKit works, like all like this this new infrastructure that they're building, that they built CloudKit on, that they're building all the photo library stuff on, 
all the indications so far, it is a little early, but all the indications so far say that that's rock solid. So it does seem like most of their cloud services do work and are solid, uh, but you, know, you, you definitely hear about the ones that don't. Yeah, yeah. So I think the people who are holding that stuff up as examples of this are, are I think they're wrong. Let me take a break, and I want to talk, I guess the last thing we could talk about would be the annual schedule. Um, and maybe we can talk about that uh, crazy new MacBook that Mark Gurman says is coming. That's going to be weird. Um, you, you know but, we're both going to buy one. No, I don't want to. No, because I just bought a, a MacBook Pro. <laughs> you say that now. No, I just, I, I've, my MacBook Pro is is what I want. I want. Well, do you still have your 11-inch? I do. I'm actually recording this, but all I all, literally all I use it for is to record the show and to take a look at anything. It's still running uh, 10.9, so to take a look at anything in the old UI that I want to... What was it like when you... What did we do before Yosemite? Right. The, the only two things I use this machine for. Does it look totally garish and outdated now? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, been, it's been such a short time. <laughs> yeah, looking at 10.9 is... Oh, my God, it's ridiculous. It's not quite as ridiculous as looking at pre-iOS 7 iOS, yeah. but it's... Because they, they never quite blinged... Or they, they de-blinged it at one point and left it there. It's even uh, worse when, like... So now that, so you now use a Retina iMac full-time, right? Right. So uh, how, how bad is it when you see a non-Retina screen now? That's, well, my 11-inch has, has the non-Retina screen, and it's like, ugh. Yeah, like, I, I did... I, I got a Mac Mini for some some uh, auxiliary duties here. It's It runs headless, but we have, we have an old 27-inch uh, uh, LED, whatever, cinema display in the closet, so I took that out to set it up. And so I had side. I kept going back, back and forth between my 27-inch Retina iMac and the 27-inch Thunderbolt display, which at the time it came out was an amazing display. They still sell it. It's now well, now it's Thunderbolt. I I have the pre one anyway. Right. It's, it's an amazing display. Yeah, like incredibly good, like bright, nice colors, great, you know, great brightness, great contrast. Like by all specs, it is an amazing display. And when it came out, I remember like I had some other like HP monitor and I looked at I looked at the two I'm like oh my god my HP monitor looks like crap compared to this wonderful Apple monitor and now that, that I have you know the retina version of that same thing basically uh going between the two as I was setting up the like the first time I, I saw the the Thunderbolt one the the non-retina one I'm like oh is this the wrong resolution like what is what is wrong with this it looks terrible like what oh my god this was normal I looked at this all day like it it's <laughs> it's I know this sounds awful but it's it's such a it's such a difference, uh, but yeah, I would imagine yeah, like looking back at Mavericks once you're accustomed to Yosemite, it probably looks quite ridiculous. Yeah, the other thing that makes me think I might not like if, if assuming that the German thing is true that well, we'll talk about it in a second. Yeah, all right. but I don't I don't think I would like the the keyboard. I'm concerned, yeah, because because it's too close together, right? Yeah, and that's the thing I never liked about my 11 inch Air, and not that, not I don't even know if it's close enough, but it doesn't have the key travel that the bigger power books do, and it's one of the oh, it nice, doesn't. No, well, at least mine didn't. I got the my 11 inch Air is the last Air that doesn't have keys that light up. Yeah, you have the 2010. Yeah, uh, it was the only one that ever. It was only like the the first one did the 2008 old crappy one that did light up. Then the, the 2010 ones initially didn't, and then they brought it back in 2011. No, the keys, when you press them, don't go as far down as on other PowerBooks. And it's the nicest, probably the single nicest thing about the, well, the screen's the nicest thing, but the second nicest thing after the Retina screen is the keyboard. Oh, and I that's just, totally news to me. I, right. I thought that they all used the same part. Like all the all the current Apple apps, I, I thought the keyboard was the exact same in all of them. You know, and for obvious reasons, the main thing I use a PowerBook for instead of 
or no, I still call them power books. The main thing I use a MacBook for <laughs> instead of an iPad in any situation is typing. So right, right. The nice keyboard really. So I'm worried about that. Anyway, let me tell you about our third sponsor. It's another longtime friend of the show. It's our friends at Harry's. Harry's sells high quality. I would say the highest quality men's shaving stuff, and they sell it at amazing prices. Um, the basic gist, you've heard the backstory, but the basic gist is that the founders of Harry's uh, just asked themselves one day, why the hell is it so hard and so expensive to uh, to buy razors? Why, when you go into a drugstore, do you have to find like a clerk who can unlock a glass cabinet and get it out? I mean, you know why they lock them up. It's shoplifting, I guess. Uh, but it just makes buying it a whole pain in the ass. And why, is, why are the blades so expensive? Uh, so they started a company to disrupt the market. Uh, and they take it super, super seriously. They bought their own razor blade factory in Germany. They found a razor blade factory making high quality blades. They bought it. They're making their own blades. It's not just some kind of white label. You know, they don't just scribble the name Harry's on a bunch of blades. They just buy on the market. They buy high quality stuff. Uh, they make high quality stuff. The handles are great. Everything about the products is great. When you snap the blade into the handle, it has a nice click. It comes in a nice box. I've said before, I always feel terrible throwing away the Harry's box because it just yeah. <laughs> looks like the type of box. It's like an Apple box. Like nobody throws away their Apple boxes. It, and But then I think, well, now my, 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 my bathroom is filled with empty Harry's boxes. But trust me, that's how good this stuff is. Um, really great stuff. They've got good shaving cream, aftershave, stuff that smells good. Uh, they've slowly but surely since they've started, they've started expanding their range of stuff where they've got a couple of more options. So if you checked them out a while ago, uh, it's worth looking at harrys.com and see some of the new products that they have that are relatively new. Um, but the main thing is their starter kit is just 15 bucks. That's a razor, three blades and your choice of either their shave cream or the foaming shave gel. Um, and when you buy new blades, this is where it really kicks in. You, it's about half the price of like the top stuff from Gillette or Schick or whatever. Just go to Amazon. Go to Amazon and like price compare like what a replacement set of five blades from Gillette costs compared to Harry's. And it's literally about, you know, give or take 50%. You know, it's a factor of 2x. Uh, and you have the convenience where you just order online. You don't have to go into a store or anything like that. It just shows up at your house when you need them. Uh, really can't say how nice it is. It's just a great experience, great product. Uh, and, you know, everybody has to shave something. So, Here's a yeah. new motto for the year. Yeah. So where do you go to find out more? Go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and use the code TALKSHOW. No the, just TALKSHOW. And I forget what their deal is, but you'll save some bucks. Five and bucks off your first order. That's it. Five bucks off your first order. Um, so my thanks to Harry's great product talk show is the code. You'll save five bucks. So I get, what you get the kit for just 10 bucks? I think so. That's crazy. It's a great product. You'll can't believe that you buy it for, even for 15 bucks. You just can't believe that, it, that it's 15 bucks. Great company. So the annual schedule, that's, Ooh, shit. My disc is full. <laughs> Hold on a second. I got to delete some podcasts here. That's fine. All right. Um, I want to talk about the annual schedule. 
which I think is uh, for Yosemite and iOS, which they've stuck to for a couple of years and as a source for this trend that we're seeing. And I think part of this too is sort of from within Apple is sort of a they can't win scenario because in the early years of the iPhone, 2007, 2008, the Mac, they admitted, they even had like a press release the one time. They had to publicly say, we pulled engineers from Mac OS X to help get the new you know, iOS 2.0 out the door. Right. That was Leopard, so, right? Yeah. So we're delaying the Mac OS till October. I think it was supposed to come out at WWDC in June, and it's now it's not coming out till October. Um, you know, Steve Jobs even had his name on it. You know, you know that that you know that that hurt them to have to say something like that. Um, yeah, but like nothing bad happened as a result of that. No, but there, I, I, I'm not even saying something bad happened for it. I'm just saying, though, that I feel like within Apple, they're like proud of the fact that they've gotten to the point where they can do, uh, keep both OSs in states of constant development. You know, that well, they're, can they? Well, I don't think either Yosemite or iOS 8 is so bad that I wish I hadn't upgraded. No, they're not. And that's, see, that this, that's the problem. Like, it's, and maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is part of the problem. Like, they're not bad enough that, like, alarm bells are going off. Right. But the, the rate of tiny paper cuts seems to be increasing. Yeah. And I don't know. Like, is it, is it, it you know, if they're going to do that, is this the, in a, it, is this the way it has to be? You know, is there no way to either they slow down one or the other operating systems or this is what we're going to get? Like, I don't know. Well, I, I don't think a slowing down would necessarily be that bad. I mean, you know, and right now we're going through a few, tr a few big transitions in the OSs. And we, we've been going through them over the last couple of releases where, you know, iOS 7 was the massive redesign in addition to a whole bunch of new frameworks under the hood. Um, iOS 8 added the whole extension system, which is a pretty substantial thing. Well, um, and the whole the whole idea of having these cross inner inner application, not just extensions in particular. Extensions are like one version of it, but the way that so much of how we interact with the system is going through these, um, you know, yeah, the, the, the XPC thing, yeah, the XPC stuff, yeah. And so instead of having things that run in your app, and if they go bad, crash your app, they're outside your app in a sandbox and it's it's not just one thing like uh sharing extensions it's a whole bunch of things it's a big transition right and so like so they're going through transitions like that uh you know they so maybe the last few releases have just been bigger than than the releases will usually be you know maybe this problem will will settle down in the next couple of releases just by nature of they've now they've they're now on the other side of these giant transitions but and and like you know when you call something a stable release some part of it is just like a marketing value some part of it is like you know we're going to declare this x.0 and that's just a number it doesn't mean anything um but so and so so you could always choose to just put less in each one and and still kind of have the best of both worlds but some part of it also is like what guy was saying like the the way like the the, the whole development pace of like how how the year is spent how the time between releases is spent um, between like you know launching, fixing the bugs, then you know kind of quiet period where you start developing the next stuff, and then and then you know beta for the next thing, and then launch the next thing. Um, that will still be a problem. That will still be this compressed version, uh, even right. if you just do less in each version. I still think it will be better than what you have now of doing a lot in each version and releasing them every year. 
I also, you know, it's important to point out for the marketing value of this that this is a pretty young thing. It, it isn't young for iPhones necessarily. Um, you know, most iPhones have co- have coincided with new iOS releases or at least been fairly close to them. Um, but they don't, first of all, they don't have to be. No, I think there's always been. I don't think there's ever been an iPhone that hasn't coincided with a new iOS. It's I just think, that I think, I think you're right. I just couldn't think of. I couldn't think of the earlier ones. No, there's never been, and they and you've never been one that can run the old OS. And some of them, like in the iOS three, iOS four era, were not so heavily new features, and you know was a little bit more, you know, just expanding the foundation. But it was always a new point oh to coincide with the new phone. Right. But but and sometimes they haven't been that way. Like uh, iPads, like the, famously the first iPad right. shipped with iOS three point two. It was a special build, a special track for the iPad right. that wasn't unified until iOS four point two, I think, or four point one. It, it was it was even iOS four shipped right. first on the iPhone wasn't didn't even run on the iPad, and then four point one or four point two unified them. Um, so like they have released hard. So. Much of the recent high-profile hardware has launched with new OS versions, but not all of it has. And when it hasn't, nothing bad happened. Like, there was there was no real downside to the iPad shipping with 3.2 instead of waiting for 4.0 to be ready to ship this hardware product. There was also no major downside to the iPad not even getting 4.0 because it wasn't ready yet. Right. And, like... You know, a few people complain, but it wasn't a it wasn't a huge deal. It it didn't hurt the sales of the iPad really. It didn't hurt the iPhone. It didn't hurt iOS four. Like, it just didn't. It wasn't a big deal. Right. Famously, the iPad in particular had more explosive sales in those early years than it has now. Now they've stat you know flattened right, off. Right. Exactly. And, so and not that's only for other reasons, but still. Right. So and you know, Macs are released all the time, and if 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 a new version of Mac OS ten is going to be due soon. They'll they'll usually hold it same like like they did with the Retina iMac. They'll usually hold it for that for that same event and then they'll ship together. But you know a Mac could be released next month and it'll run the OS that's from four months ago or five months ago, whatever. And doesn't matter. Nothing nothing bad happens. You know no one says oh Apple should have released a new OS with these new MacBook Airs. Like nope, doesn't matter at all. Doesn't even come up. Yeah. So I, I question like the the value of having this this like lockstep of of major OSs tied to major hardware releases, I think is mostly self-imposed. I think they do it that way because they like to do it that way or they think they should do it that way. But when it hasn't gone that way, I think the market has spoken loud and clear that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I do, you know, and I don't think that it's as superficial as that they want to do it so that they have more to show in a keynote. But you know, I think there's something loosely along those lines, though, where they they you know it's easier easier to market when there's more new features. Right, and that's what I mean when I say that marketing is becoming too high of a priority. It's it's not that like because and that you know one of the things that bothered me like I I never said the marketing department um, because I what I didn't want to say is like. Phil Schiller is personally controlling Apple and killing right. Fred, Craig Federighi's goals, like because that's not what that's not what I meant. I mean that the the idea of marketing, the the marketing yeah. benefits of this annual schedule and of lockstepping them with the hardware, that is too high of a priority. That is taking priority seemingly over software quality, and that is what I have a problem with. And and that is not a departmental thing, as far as I know. You know, I don't I don't think 
you know, Phil Schiller is personally taking over the company and having these battles. With everybody. I seriously doubt that. Uh, I think it's like the company has decided as a whole at the high level, like this, this schedule is, is right for the company. This is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to have these annual releases. We're going to, you know, tie these things lockstep so that hardware releases with software. Yeah. And I've always said, you know, I think you, your point is well put. And I, I've always said that, uh, Marketing at Apple doesn't work like it does at a lot of other companies. I don't know about most other companies. I don't know. But like I think the traditional way where marketing is like icing on the cake and it's like products go through development and when they're done being developed, they hand them over to marketing and marketing figures out a box and a tagline and finishes it. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's better. I've always said like one way to think of it is it would be better to you'd better understand Phil Schiller's responsibilities if you took the word marketing out of his title and just thought of him as senior vice president of product. Exactly. It's inextricably tied. You know, it, it the 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 advertising of the products, the marketing of the products is inextricably tied to the development of the products from the the get-go. It's it's one and the same. Right, like they're not they're not going to make a product that that there's no clear market for or that doesn't fit into their marketing message as a whole. Right. And they that makes their marketing I think refreshingly honest that what they are bragging about about their products is usually true. Right. I mean most of their marketing is like here is what our product is. Period. Right. Like, like when the, they don't need when to the, do that much more than that. Like when the MacBook Air first came out, and they, you know they had the ad where it came out of an envelope, and they were like, "Look at this laptop! It's crazy thin and crazy light." Well, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. You know, there was no no spin on it, no lie. You know. Um. Yeah, which we'll get to in a few minutes, I bet. But yeah, uh, maybe. But yeah, so uh, like, so I mean, I I think the the annual review cycle. I think is a major part of the quality problems. The quality decline did, I think, precede it because the annual review cycle is pretty young. I mean, what did they start that with Lion? Yeah. Or when they went, I think when they went from Lion to Mountain Lion, I think that was the first one year interval, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a little bit more than a year. It was, um, uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page now. Mac OS 10, 10.7 Lion shipped in October, 2010. And, Mountain Lion was announced February 2012. That was February 2012. That was the one where they had like the private briefings, like uh, like Ryan. Right, is that the one where Schiller told you we're going to do things differently now? Or yeah. Whatever? Yeah. 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 Like that. I think that was when this started. Was was roughly then. You know. Yeah. That, I think that's what they meant. They're doing things differently. You know, in a few ways. But so you know that. Yeah, I and think I, is... you know, and I should say, yeah, I, I maybe I, I overemphasized the cyclical nature of Apple. We've really only had two releases that follow the current cycle of a June announcement and an October debut. Right. iOS has been more consistent because because the phone schedule has been pretty much the same. I mean, you know, it shifted from June yeah. to September or whatever, but otherwise it's been pretty much the same. Yeah, beginning um, of summer to end of summer. Right, exactly. But yeah, overall, you know, iPhone has been consistent. Uh, it's only really Mac that has become inconsistent recently. Right. Or, right. or, or that, has, that, is, that is now consistent, rather. Yeah, and it used to be annual in the early years because it was so bad and yeah. needed so much improvement. <laughs> well, it you was know? young. Yeah. You know, like now it, like... I don't see that as a Mac user. I don't really see a lot of value in revving the the main OS I use for all of my work uh, frequently. Like I don't see the point. Like the only reason I got Yosemite when I did was because I bought a new computer that came with it. 
Uh, I would have waited probably until like a point two, most likely, before I installed it. Uh, I never installed it on my old computer. I, I only I only got it because the new computer came with it and can't be downgraded. Uh, and because like I, I'm very risk averse with my work computer. Right. Like I'm yeah. if I'm in the middle of a project, which I almost always am, I will put off any updates. Even even like a, a an X point two or X point three, like I'll put that off until I'm like done editing the podcast for the week, just in case something bad happens, you know, something like that. Yeah, my way has always been to have a computer at my desk that's my, quote, main computer. That's yeah. the, the iMac 5K. I'll keep that at a conservative pace and then have a laptop that I, that I don't really give two craps about. If it, it, Not that I don't care about it, but that I don't care if it gets buggy. Right, that I'll, yeah. that I'll install developer betas on. Yeah, my laptop actually runs the, like the, it's it's on the Yosemite beta chain, like through the app store. So yeah, like, so am I. it's currently on, on 10.10.2 or whatever it is. Yeah, and I regret it terribly. Mine actually, that actually, I mean, I hardly use that computer, but that's actually not been a problem for me. Yeah, well, there's one particular bug that really, it's driving me nuts. The dictionary, and I don't even know how universal it is, but for me at least, you know, the dictionary lookup feature where you can do, uh, I've changed my shortcut. I think the standard one might be control command D. Oh, I, I, I always forget that. I still launch the dictionary app from Spotlight every time. Or, or from launch bar. you know, this is a cool shortcut. You can triple tap on the trackpad over a word, not click. Tap. Right, right. Triple tap, and you get an inline dictionary lookup of whatever word you want. You use it all the time. That's it crazy. Cra- it crashes Mars Edit. It <laughs> it doesn't crash BB Edit, but in BB Edit, it leaves the yellow highlighted thing of the word on screen. Oh, that's weird. It's something changed between ten one and ten two with third party apps in the dictionary lookup, and I do it all the time. And I know I I know it's going to crash, but I don't think about it. I think I got to look. Did I spell this right? Triple tap. Did, boom. Now, all the apps I use are like Mars Edit and BB Edit. They all auto-save everything, so I don't lose data, but it's still a, an annoyance. Yeah, and it's just, it, this is the problem. There's so many little things like that. Yeah. I mean, But it's a beta, so I'm not complaining yeah, about it. No, anyway, uh, yeah, obviously. Here's the, here's the historical schedule for Mac OS X. So 10.0 came out in early 2001. And, and that barely a, even counts. It was a heap and pile of shit. And then 10.1 came out in July, uh, later the same year. Uh, when, just from March to July, they came out with a with a major version of Mac OS X. Ten point two was May two thousand two. Ten point three was June two thousand three. These are announcement dates, not release dates. I guess I should do release dates. Uh, then we waited like a l- almost two years for ten four Tiger, which is really where I feel like they tied it off and were like, okay, we're done with like the early years of Mac OS ten. Yeah, I came in with Tiger. With even 10-3. went all the way to. Tiger went all the way to 10.4.11, which yeah. I think is the highest they ever got. Yeah, it's the highest they ever got. So 10.6 they had a, didn't get that high? No, 10.6 only went to 10.6.8. Oh. But there was, it, Wikipedia lists a 10.6.8 V1.1, which is some kind of weird patch. <laughs> um, but that's where they switched to like two years. And in fact, 10.5 didn't come out until... October 26, 2007. That's the one where That was they, the delayed uh, one. The delayed one. So yeah. it was about two and a half years. Um, and that was a really stable time, by the way. It's, this, I think, is the high water mark that, uh, you know, and again, like as Jowkit had a web po- uh, weblog post in response to your thing, you know, don't, don't, don't use too much, you know, rose don't have too, glasses. Yeah, rose colored glasses. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Don't have too strong a prescription in your rose colored glasses. That, right. Like all the people and, who allegedly like WebOS. But, you know, I do think there's something to, you know, the, it being a high water mark, this era, a high water mark for stability system wide. Um, 
you know, I mean, and everybody glorifies 10.6 also, uh, because that was the famous one that they said no new features. We're just gonna like you know work on the work on the under the hood stuff, right? And it was successful, and it, it, it was that brought in tons of modern stuff. That brought in Grand Central Dispatch, among other things. And it included though included in the fact that it had no new features is it was two years after 10.5 Leopard came out, so it was yeah. two years since the release. It was this is you know it was released in 2009. Um, this is interesting. It was announced in June 2008, but didn't get released until August 2009. I don't remember that. Do you remember it being a year in beta? No, but it doesn't matter. Well, I don't know. If it's on Wikipedia, it's got to be true. Of course. Um, but it was two years and had no new features. And it was two years until we got Lion. So there was like this four-year period. And again, no new features is kind of bullshit. I mean, like adding Grand Central Dispatch, it's not a feature because it's not like a thing that they can put in a commercial, but right. it's clearly, you know, a huge feature. It's just a behind-the-scenes developer feature. Um, but that's like a four-year period where they didn't really have a lot of user-facing features added and is widely viewed, and I think accurately so, as sort of the high-water mark of, of stability. Yeah, and, and, you know, part of that could be rose-colored glasses, but I, I think there is a lot of truth to that. Yeah, we might see something like that soon, though. Like you said, they're going through transitions now, and it's, you know, iCloud is certainly one of them. I think the other transition they're going through is this general idea of iOS and Mac being siblings. Right. Like, like uh, you know, it, it tied together. The best example of that, best example, has got to be the iWork the new versions of all the iWork apps, where now they're saying these are the exact same file formats between the two, even if that means that the Mac version is going to lose a bunch of cool features, you know, right. and eventually, presumably, they're going to get them, get those features back, but then we'll have them on both platforms. We'll have, you know, nice kerning for fonts on iOS in addition to, to Mac. And that's a perfect example, but they're doing that in little ways in, in a bunch of apps. Right, and and a lot of a lot of the underlying frameworks are also being unified. A lot of the underlying API stuff, the SDKs, a lot of that has been unified in the last couple of releases. Um, they've both gone through the major visual redesigns, uh, more so on iOS, but but still, you know, Yosemite has no no slouch in that department. So like, right. they have gone through a lot in the last couple of years. And I don't expect either of those things to happen again anytime soon either. I think we're at least five, six, seven years from either OS getting a major visual refresh. Right. Other, you know, just an annual tightening up. Yeah. Swift gives me a little bit of pause because, you know, right now, like, like Swift was announced, nothing written inside of Apple was using Swift yet. And none of the frameworks use Swift natively. None of them are written in Swift natively, at least not as of last year. Um, so, you know, introducing a whole new programming language that certainly begs for for a lot of things to be rewritten in it. Um, that might be a major thing that is potentially a, a burden or a distraction on the engineering teams. I, I also question whether that is what they should be doing with their time. But um, in general, though, I think uh, they, the next couple of releases have very good reason to be less ambitious and, and more stable. Yeah. I hope so. Um, before we move on and you know, talk about that MacBook thing, the other thought I had is that a lot of the complaints that I've seen with regard to these little nagging, yeah, it's supposed to just work, but it doesn't just work. A lot of it has to do with wireless networking and stuff that's supposed to happen between two devices. Like for me in particular, AirDrop 
is amazing. AirDrop works absolutely great, and I use it all the time. Like where I'm on the phone and I have, oh, I want to link to this from Daring Fireball. And instead of doing what I used to do, it like send it to Pinboard or something right, and right. then go to my Mac and get it. I just AirDrop it to my Mac as soon as my Mac wakes up and it, boom, it's there and it's, it, it, there's nothing to clean up. I don't have to erase or let languish forever an old Pinboard bookmark that I really just wanted to shuffle between the two. Um, it's great. But I've heard from people who say AirDrop never works for them. Um, but anyway, what gives me pause is that a lot of these things are these little nagging two things that are supposed to talk to each other over Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or whatever don't really quite work the way they're supposed to. Is that is the entire description of Apple Watch, right? It's yep. like the sort of things that don't just work are the only things Apple Watch exists for. There's nothing else there is other than telling time. There's nothing else the thing does other than these little wireless interactions sort of dancing all day long with other devices. I, I even thought earlier, like, you can't even sync Apple Watch with a cable. No. Like, there's no ports on it. It can only charge. Everything else is wireless. So, like, I you know, this stuff has to be... So one thing, though, the Apple Watch, it, it can go either way. I think you can look at it from one side and you can say, well, this is going to be a brand new 1.0 of everything. And it's going to be potentially a huge drain on engineering resources at Apple and focus from Apple, which could bode very poorly for their quality going forward. Or you can look at it as maybe the Apple Watch will take some of the marketing burden for a while and let them be a little more boring with the with iOS and OS 10. And pour enormous resources into things like getting the blue code, Bluetooth stack in really tip-top shape. Right. Like so, I, I think this could this this is a wild card. I, you know, I, I think the watch. I don't. Th I mean, I, again, this I could be wrong. I don't think the watch is going to require a massive amount of engineering of software engineering. Uh, it simply can't do that much yet. The hardware is very simple. You know, it. it you know, relative to the to all the things iOS does, for instance, all the things Mac OS X does, I don't think it's going to require massive engineering resources to to get it through its first you know couple of years. Uh, again, that could be totally wrong. I don't know. Uh, but just as a relative thing, I think it's probably a much smaller project. Um, but it will... And, and I also don't know how well it's going to sell. You know, it, it could end up being, you know, just like new iPods, basically. Like, it could just be like... It could disappoint a lot of analysts. It could disappoint Apple. It could sell, you know, uh, a few million here or there, you know, but but not set the world on fire and not be ubiquitous among Apple people. Or it could set the world on fire and it could sell tremendously. And it could like we have no idea how it's going to sell yet. And I think that that might determine some of its some of the company's future priorities and direction. I think the single single I think it's if it works as advertised, it's going to sell very well. And I think the single thing that could sink it would be if it comes out in the next month or two, two months, whenever it's supposed to come out. And there's a bunch of little nagging bugs with the interactivity with your iPhone. And, you know, your text messages are supposed to be showing up on your wrist and they don't. Or it's not supposed to drain your battery. But when you sync, you know, when you have an iPhone, you, you know, you put your Apple Watch on and your phone, which used to typically get you through the whole day, is in the red by noon that's good. That would be a huge problem because I, it, it, it's not that they can't fix those bugs. It's that the perception will hit while it's young, that the thing doesn't work like it's supposed to. And that sort of thing is very, very hard to shake. 
Oh yeah, I mean, like, like if, if it becomes part of people's tech superstitions to like, oh, you better like only turn on Bluetooth when you're doing something with the watch, and turn Bluetooth off on your phone to save your battery. Like, yeah, exactly. if that kind of stuff starts getting into like the the culture as as common wisdom, you know, it could it could become the next quit all your apps thing where it's that's, actively that, harmful. That's why I wrote when I linked to your thing that it's the perception. Like to me, the biggest problem with this trend and the resonation that your post got is that it's it, by Apple leaving these things. You know, like as you put it, you know, leaving some ground at the functional, leaving some of the area at the functional high ground, whatever you hell you call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not my best title ever. Although I don't, I I disagree with your analysis that you have to lose the high ground to someone else. I think you can lose, like, because if you think about the moral high ground, you can lose the moral high ground without someone else becoming better than you at it. You can just become worse at it yourself. Yeah, I I know what you mean. It's not quite it, it it's not quite fair that I said it's that you have to lose it to him. I do think it's an important point. I worry though that the fact that he, that I thought that way uh it occurred to me later rethinking that that it could be a worrisome sign that if Apple people inside Apple see it the same way, well who did we lose it to that you're blind to a problem. Right. And what I did see though right away is that it's that to me is already a problem. And is the fact that so many people seem to agree with you is a problem. And it's the perception because, and it doesn't matter whether we're overreacting or whether most people are, it, if it, if that becomes their perception, it's hard for Apple to shake that. They can fix the bugs. They can significantly improve the quality of their platforms across the board. And people won't notice because there's this perception that the stuff doesn't work right. And and there's a lot of reasons why that perception is reasonable. If if you look at, uh, you know, the, the various issues people have had applying iOS updates over the last couple of years, uh, if you look at how iOS updates have performed on old hardware over the last couple of years, a lot of people are understandably wary. They've gotten burned before, and and they like now they're like, well, I don't want to install the new update because I heard it broke some people's phones, or it broke right. my phone, or it made my phone really slow. Well, the one that they pushed, it was bad because there's always going to be bugs and there's sure. always going to be there's always going to be weird, you know, who knows, like a freaking ion from outer space hits your phone the wrong way and corrupts some part of the OS, you know, and if something in the flash memory gets corrupted uh, and a software update bricks your phone and doesn't brick your wife's phone. Well, you know, one in a one in ten thousand gets bricked by an update. Well, those sort of bugs happen. They suck, but they happen. You can't say you can never do that. But you, I think it's fair to say you can never push out an over-the-air update that bricks every phone that takes it. Right. Like that just is that was just an inexcusable slip, and creates again this perception that when you see it, when your phone tells you, "Hey, there's a new iOS," you should not be worried. You shouldn't think, "Oh God." You know, I know some people who don't, you know, who just keep that red badge on, you know, the settings app because they don't want to install it. Oh, yeah. My, my mom's phone is still running iOS 6 because when it's... iOS 7 came out, she saw on the news about the motion sickness and she got scared and she refused to install iOS 7. She's never even seen it. All right. So she's just got a red badge on her on her. Yeah. Settings for the app. last two years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She'll get it when she gets a new phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Um. Anyway, I think that perception is important. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll relate it to the Newton. And I know it was a very different Apple in the 90s, and they were so small. And, you know, something like the Newton appealed to so few people. But it was mainstream enough, you know, that it, everybody cites the Doonesbury um, 
cartoon that made fun of it, and uh, The Simpsons made fun of it too. So I mean, it was popular enough that it was grist for Simpsons gags. Um, it got that stink on it that the handwriting recognition doesn't work, so that you could make Doonesbury and Simpsons gags about it. It didn't take that long though before the handwriting got pretty darn good on you know like the the message pad two thousand. It was pretty. It was about as good as you could hope that like a nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety six computer could recognize your handwriting. It was really pretty good. Nobody really got everybody. You'd say Newton, they'd say goofy, terrible handwriting recognition. Right. Well, most of them also had never tried one. No, but if if Apple Watch comes out and in the first year it seems like none of the stuff it's supposed to do works reliably, um. That'd be hard to shake, even if they fix it. Yeah, that's true. Like it's really important that it that it does everything it's supposed to do pretty well. And again, that sounds like a stupid thing to say. It sounds like well, everything you should do what it's supposed to do pretty well. But like with a new product, it's essential because the first impression is so much. It it informs you know a decade of what you're going to think of it. Like the first iPhone, it was so important that it really was an amazing device. It really couldn't be a bad device. And there, and there's a substantial number of people, both just who can't wait for Apple to fail, so they can talk about it and make fun of it and and point it out and laugh. And also, a lot of people who are going to be looking for a reason are going to be looking for a reason for Apple, you know, not to to, to fail somehow. They're like, yes, they're like waiting for Apple to fail. And there's also going to be a lot of people out there who are, who are looking for reasons why they don't need to care about the Apple Watch. They're looking for an excuse not to buy it. They're looking for a way to a reason to rule it out in their in their head as irrelevant, fail, move on. And so any ammo that that is provided to that is going to get amplified like crazy uh and and you know they have to be very careful not to give much ammo to that. You know, there's going to be some kind of gate with everything right. Apple launches now. <laughs> every stupid gate that comes out every time there's a new iPhone. Like there there's going to be some kind of watch gate and uh, and they have to make sure that it's something that's you know reasonably stupid like Bendgate and not something serious. All right. Well, you know, yeah. Imagine if it's a real thing. Like if Bendgate got as much publicity as it did, and it was mostly nonsense, and AntennaGate got the enormous publicity it got, and was in the long run mostly nonsense. Um, Imagine a real problem, you know, like, right. vo- you know, you're supposed to be able to hold the button and dictate your, you know, texts to your watch. And, and if instead you just get a spinner that spins and spins and spins and you never get your text, that's a problem. Right, exactly. And so, like, these quality things are extremely, Im- you know, this is like, like when I've been critical of, of their developer policies recently, one of the things I've said is, like, this is strategically a very bad time to have problems in this area. Because the watch is coming out, and and when the watch is coming out, you need the quality of everything that's that's powering it on the phone side, all you know everything that's supplying it with the data, the Bluetooth stuff. As you said, like you need the quality of that to be tip top, so that way the watch can at least focus on its own. Like you know those teams can rely on that, and then the watch can have this solid foundation under it. And you also need developers who are uh, empowered and willing and happy to be developing apps for this platform and that, that are going to push the boundaries and make cool apps for it. So two things that Mark Gurman reported, uh, I think on the same day this week, but he reported first about that, this, you know, showing mock-ups of a 12 inch MacBook air, but he also said the date 
that it, Apple's planning for a March release date of Apple Watch. Did that I, that surprised me a little? If it's true, that sounded late to me. I because oh really? I thought that sounded early. I really expected uh, like April or May. Maybe I don't know. I you know we I think we heard rumblings a couple of weeks ago that it would be like February, but it, it doesn't really matter. I mean you know it'll come out when it's out. I I would rather have it come out when it's when it's better than come out when it's not quite ready yet. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, so that's fine. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, I you know I I I guess it's just the pessimist in me. They say early twenty fifteen. I hear before June. Yeah, you see, you hear May thirty first. <laughs> right. Uh, whereas I guess the more honest way of looking at it is early is first quarter. I don't know, but so maybe it will. I'm a little surprised by that. Um, it also makes me wonder whether I should be on my feet for an Apple event. You know, sooner rather than later. I mean, I think an Apple event is is fair game anytime. Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't expect it like next week, but I, would, you know, if it if there was an event in February with availability a couple of weeks later, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, me neither. Um, so German's other story is this blockbuster twelve inch MacBook Air. Um, yeah, with one port. With one port, which is so crazy that I think it's probably true. Yeah, well, two because... with the headphone, but that doesn't really count. Right. And I, at the, it's. I thought Snell's reaction was perfect, where he was just like, "Ah, that's crazy." Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like if if you would have, if we would, I don't remember if the first MacBook Air had any rumors leads. I don't think it did. No, it was it was a total surprise. Yeah, I th- as I recall, I recall it being like a holy shit! I cannot believe that. Right. Exactly. I think you're right. So anyway, and I think the slogan. I think it was at. I think it was at WWDC. I just remember there was something that said, "There's something in the air." Yeah. 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 And so, like, I like if you, if we would have heard rumors about that beforehand, and we would have heard crazy things like because that that was also was that the first one that didn't have an optical drive? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, cause, yeah, because they launched the external one with it. Yeah, because so, everybody among the many now, how can they do this? It's impossible. It's like how can they ship a thing with? How are you going to install the OS? Right. So so you know they shipped this three point pound right uh, laptop. At the time when everything else was 5.5 pounds, they shipped this 3.0 pound laptop that fit in a mailing envelope and was super thin and had this like sharp edge in the front and had no optical drive and sometimes no hard drive, one USB port. Like it was, it was so, it, it, it was so much smaller. They had to make a separate power adapter for it that even the power adapter was smaller even the plug on the end of it was a different shape to fit the beveled edge. You had this door that the ports folded out from this door. I mean, it, there was so much about it that if you would have heard it ahead of time, and even when it did come out, everyone was like, that's crazy. It was uh, January 2008. It was Macworld Expo. There you go. All right. Yeah. So it was, it was, the, it was year, the year after yeah. the year after the iPhone introduction at Macworld. It was it was a big another big introduction at Macworld. Yeah, I have to go back and rewatch that and, and try to like gauge the reaction because like. And I actually I had one of those. Uh, David at Tumblr got me one of those as a bonus because uh, I I had mentioned how I wanted a, a lighter laptop, and it was very nice of him. So, and I had one of those, and and it was ungodly slow. I mean, because I you know I had the hard drive model, so it was like it was uh, you know, this, oh. this 1.8 inch iPod hard drive in there because the the SSD option was a thousand dollars more and 64 gigs, 
or you can get the the iPod hard drive, which was eighty gigs, which is what I got. I remember and, Shipley got Shipley got the SSD version, and it was like I know it sounds crazy, but it's a great development machine because SSDs are so great for development because you're dealing with you know hundreds of tiny little files. Yeah, and in two thousand eight, when this thing came out, that like SSDs were extremely rare. That it was one of the first yeah. computers to even offer it as an option. Uh, I don't think it was the first, but it was one of the first, and and so like. That machine, when it came out, had all these crazy limitations and a lot of flaws. I mean, like like the CPU, we talked about a little bit on ATP, like the CPU on, on a lot of them would, th- would overheat and throttle. So like you couldn't watch YouTube videos. Like you, 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 you couldn't play Flash video for more than a few seconds before it would start dropping frames because the CPU was overheating and throttling. I actually, on mine, I ran an underclocking utility that would underclock and undervolt the chip to keep it running cooler so that way it, it could sustain its its peak usage for for enough time to to play videos smoothly wow. but like it was it it was a crazy machine it was way ahead of its time and in many ways that was a bad thing it made it you know that the performance was just dismal um it was extremely inconvenient to move files to it because it only had uh it had 802.11g or i think it was the draft n wireless so like you know wireless was still a lot slower back then and it only had a, a, a single usb 2.0 port no firewire no thunderbolt uh usb 2 and you, you could like you could send files to it over wireless which would take forever or you could get the wired ethernet adapter the usb one that was only 10 100 and ran over usb 2 and usb 2 is a horrible protocol <laughs> and and so like transferring files to it would just take hours it, like if you wanted to like put a bunch of like movies on it so when you're going on a big trip or something it would just take hours it was unbearable to use in many contexts but what was so new about it being so incredibly thin and light mostly light the thinness was kind of a, a nice bonus but it was mostly the weight being so radically much smaller than everything else that was so good that this machine was quite compelling for a lot of people. It, it it was not good enough to be your only computer for most people. And some people pulled it off, but it, it, for the most part, it wasn't going to be your only one. Right, because it only had sixty four gigs of storage. Right, or you... or eighty if you had the 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 beautifully slow one. Right. Um. So you know it at it a time was... when you had a lot less cloud storage. Yeah. You know. Yeah, like like you had to keep a lot more. You had to keep everything you had locally. Like there was. There was no such thing as like, oh, I, I'm going to keep everything I have on Dropbox and only sync this one little folder over, or I'm going to keep everything on, you know, there, I don't think iTunes Match was out yet. Like there, no, it, no, it was it, it was a much worse time to have very limited storage, <laughs> and right. uh, and and so, but it, but you know, people made it work, and it wasn't it wasn't overall a great machine, but it was really compelling in a few key areas. So now bring it forward, and and you know, the, in 2010 they made the better MacBook Airs, and SSDs started getting bigger and cheaper, and they went all SSD, and and the the 2010 and forward MacBook Airs are far better machines, but, uh, and and now like like they pointed out on uh, Connected well, I, this I, week, I don't even think it's I don't think there's any argument that for most people who mo- it's the most popular Mac Apple sells, and for most people it's their only Mac. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if if you if someone comes to me and says, "What Mac should I buy?" and they and they don't give me any other information, if 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 they if I need to have a no questions asked answer to that, the answer is a 13-inch MacBook Air. Yep. Like yeah. that's it. That's the answer. That's, now, you, that's the I interrupted default. you. You said something about the connected? Yeah, so they mentioned this on this week. Um they were saying pointing out how like, you know, the MacBook Air used to be this high end. It it, it started out it was 1800 or $1600. It, it it was priced 
above the other above the 13 inch MacBook. Yep. And and it was it was a premium product to be slower and smaller and everything, but yeah, it, was, it was so much more portable. It was like uh, getting a little convertible coupe. Exactly, a perfect perfect analogy. Yeah. And so yeah, like it probably shouldn't be your family sedan, but <laughs> but but you know it it is is a fun like little you know little portable and and so like the original MacBook Air was this premium thing that sat above the rest of the line uh, relative to its size. Yeah, imagine for like business travelers who you know do a lot of typing on you know coach seats on right. an airplane. It was you know I hate to say it, it's such a cliche. It was a game changer. Yeah, I mean, and and for those for those that got the SSD, I think it was like thirty four hundred dollars. It was some some crazy <laughs> amount of money, but uh, but you know so so it was this this premium awesome sports coupe kind of thing. Since then, as they pointed out on Unconnected, it has actually become the bottom of the line. Like it it has filtered down now. Like there is no regular MacBook anymore, or there's that there's that one model left over that, that they bury on the site. But for the most part, like the bottom of of the Mac line is the MacBook Air, and so this if you think about this crazy new one port rumor that that German had with a 12 inch being this like crazy new premium thing, if you think about that not as a replacement to the 11 inch MacBook Air that exists today. But if you think about it in more of the style that the original was relative to its siblings in the lineup, this kind of mid-range or like this mid-price thing, probably, you know, $1500 range type thing or or maybe a little bit more, we'll see we'll see how how it specs out, but you know, think about it as like a not the low end of the lineup, but a mid-range of the lineup that in some ways is more limited and worse than the MacBook Airs that we know today. Possibly by by having this one port or by if it uses any of these uh, new Intel Broadwell Core M slower. processors, it'll be a lot slower. It'll it'll be roughly iPad speed, uh, which is not slow by you know absolute terms for the most part, but relative to the other CPUs, it's you know it's not going to be in the same class. It's, it's always a moment when a next generation machine adds slower than what comes before it. Exactly, I mean, and there might be good reasons for it, but it still is not the way the industry works. Right, you and don't... and the first MacBook Air was a, was a big example of that, and and it got trashed initially. Like I remember when MacWorld first reviewed it, I think it was Jason who wrote it. When they first reviewed it, they were like, "This is like the slowest Mac we've tested in in a while." Like, and it was it was the slowest one in the whole lineup at the time. And uh, but anyway, if we think about it in that context, as maybe it's something like that, I think it, it that leaves room for it to suck in a few ways. That leaves room for it to be limited in a few ways. For it to say, "This is going to be a, a niche." premium thing that's going to extremely prioritize certain physical factors in exchange for you know extreme something extreme portability maybe extreme battery life probably not i'm i'm actually guessing the battery life is going to be mediocre on it um but you know it's going to prioritize thinness and lightness and size it seems if, the, above if these, all else right. exactly above all else including battery life most it's likely. going to make your existing macbook air feel thick and heavy exactly the same way the original macbook air made even the 13-inch MacBook feel just like a like a brick. Like it, you know, it. If they can pull that off, it's going to be really interesting. I I do have a, a slight concern in this area that I I do think, you know, the, the the you certainly have to some degree you have diminishing returns here. Uh, when when the original MacBook Air came out, it was like half the weight uh, or close to it of of the 13-inch MacBook at the time. Uh. How how much lighter can it get while still having a keyboard, a screen, a battery of some kind, a an aluminum case around the whole thing? Like, 
I don't think they're going to be able to nail half the weight. Like, I don't think it probably can't go that low. And we're already talking, these are already very thin like computers as they are today. So to make it even thinner, even lighter for something that is not handheld, like it matters more in an iPad or an iPhone because it's handheld. For something that's on a desk or a lap most of the time or a tray table, the weight is, you know, it matters to a point, but like if the if the computer goes from, I mean, what the kernel Evan is what like two point two, two point five, something like that pounds. Yeah, I'm bad at remembering what they are. It's something just, like that. Like I know what it, I know what it feels like. I don't know what the number is. Right, but like if it goes from two point five pounds to one point eight pounds, or if it goes from two point two to one point five, like that's a big difference on paper. It's a big percentage difference, but it like your whole bag weighs like fifteen pounds. Even like a backpack empty weighs more than that usually. Right. And so like you know, you might not even notice the weight difference. So I do worry they might be prioritizing thinness and and extreme lightness a little bit too much in this case, if it me if it'll come at the expense of battery life. Because I think this is the kind of machine that the the battery life on the current MacBook Airs is good. It's not. It doesn't. It isn't to use a term that used to be uh, a verb and is now an adjective, thanks to Apple. It isn't blow away, <laughs> but it's good. They're good. Like you know, when they came out, they were impressive. But you know, time has moved on. That's now. That's not the baseline. Yeah. All all modern MacBooks have amazing battery life compared to the old days, where it was stuck at like three to four hours. Exactly. Of effective battery life, no matter what, no matter which one you bought, no matter what you did. You know, turn the screen dimness down. Right. You know, three or four hours is about what you could get. And it would lose about an hour per year of age, too. Yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah, I just and they don't and do that for, anymore. As any as a coaster, I just always knew you could never really go coast to coast, even with a new machine. Right, exactly. You know, you kind of, you know, if you were going to work on an airplane while you flew to San Francisco from the East Coast, get your work done because you're not going to, you know, it's going to die with an hour to go. Exactly. And and like today, if you're using a laptop, if, if you're doing like, you know, medium medium lifting on it throughout the day, uh, it can almost but generally not run all day on battery. Hmm. Like it, right. they say, like, you know, oh, you have all day battery life. Well, it depends on what you're doing with it. Yeah. Uh, and if and if you leave your house with a solid charge, you can watch movies on the whole flight. No problem. Right. But and, but, you know, the question is, like, you know, if you have, uh, you know, a 40 minute layover somewhere. Do you have to plug it in, or is it just kind of optional whether you plug it in? You know <laughs> that kind of thing. Anyway, so I think they, if they're using this this super low power, you know, fanless Broadwell chip that uses I forget what the wattage is on it, but it's very low, like ten watts or something like that. Um, they could, if if they put in a similar size battery to the current MacBook Airs, that could be a very substantial battery life. Uh, but they might instead choose to just Keep keep roughly, you know, what's eleven inch today? Like roughly like five hour life, something like that in in real use, something like uh, that. I would say more than that. I six, think. Seven, I don't know. Uh, whatever old. it is, mine's old, so it's hard to say. But I, right. it's pretty pretty good. Whatever it is, like the eleven is worse than the thirteen uh, by by a pretty good margin because the thirteen just has a much bigger battery. But um, it wouldn't surprise me at all, given what they've done with iOS devices with the, with the with the iPhone six and with the iPad Air two and Air one. I wonder how much if. Again, this is a huge if, but if it's true that it really only has this one port, I wonder how much that is about cost and how much it is about using whatever space is left for battery. 
you know, that it's not so much that it would cost too much to add a second USB port, but that it's really, really, really intensive to save space. I would guess it's about two things, neither of which are very good answers. I would guess it's about symmetry, having one port on each side, and about thinness, that if German's scoop is correct, then it still retains the wedge teardrop shape. So it still is thicker at the back than it is at the front. And and if his thickness claims are accurate, then there actually is not much room for more than the ports that it has thickness-wise. Right. And also, I would not I would not discount the value of symmetry. I think symmetry is the reason why on the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, why the sleep-wake button is directly across from the volume-up button, even though it makes it way harder to hit just one of them. Right. And it's the same size. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so... I would definitely not discount that as as a possible reason why it would only be one port. Also, just you know, electrically, like if a computer has a USB port and a FireWire port, those specs each demand that the port be able to supply at least X amps of current through it. You know, at at most to supply a device with power. So the more ports it has on it, the higher the total power output for that computer has to be able to to have capacity for. Somebody on Twitter pointed out, and I'm so sorry I forgot your name, but um, that if it had two, even just two USB ports, and they were both USB-C, and it might have to be USB-C, because I think I think the device is too thin to have a traditional USB port. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the minimal size of a USB 3 port is thick enough that it, it would be a gating factor to make the overall device this thin. So it has to be the new USB. But if it had two... And you can, and they're going to use it for supplying power to the machine. You couldn't risk having two power adapters plugged in at the same time. That I, I don't know if that's true or not. That it would, you know, like break the machine or something. And conversely, how do you tell people you can use this one for power right. and this one, which is the same port? It's exactly the same size. It can take every every other thing you can plug in the other one, but that one won't take a charger. Right. In in the PC world they would just color one of them like blue or something and say, Well, just plug in the blue one. But they you know, Apple won't do anything like that. Right. And um, it would just lead to confusion because maybe you're running on battery power and you've got a mouse plugged in one and a hard drive in the other, but now you need power. So you think, Well, I'll unplug the mouse. Oh, but I plugged the mouse in the other <laughs> one and the hard drive, which I can't unmount because I'm still copying files to it, is in the power one. It doesn't right. it just doesn't, you know. Yeah, that, that's the kind of inelegant solution Apple is very unlikely to, to do. It actually makes some sense that if you're going to use USB for power and you can only have power plugged into one port, therefore you can only have one port. Exactly. So yeah, I, I, I would expect uh I, I'm I'm guessing that, like the more I think about it, the one port thing actually sounds plausible. And the more I learn about USB three C. Um the, these new C ports are, are extremely versatile and, and I don't know the, the extreme details yet, but they like they designed this spec so that the port can carry power uh seemingly in either direction. Like like the you can have a computer that powers the monitor and drives a display. So you can also route display signals over it and you can route high bandwidth buses over it and everything. It's it's crazy how much you, this thing can do. Um, we'll see how it how it works out in practice, but um like it's it's designed such that you could have just this one cable running from a monitor into a PC and have the PC both power the monitor and show the display signal over this one little cable. Yeah. Uh, and it's crazy. You know, and in terms of like skating to where the puck is going, which is what the Mac Air was at its beginning. So the, right. the original MacBook said no optical drives. And now this one says no more 
SD card port and no USB port, extra USB port where you could plug one in. Um, well, guess what? I think SD cards are going away the dodo and that your photos are going to travel over the air between devices. Right. And, and of course, we're not there yet. And if you're the more serious a photographer you are, you know, the less doable that is. But more and more regular people are shooting all of their photos with their phones and iPads. And they're, you know, in the Apple universe will therefore be using iCloud Photo Sync. And that's how your photos will get to your Mac. And a lot of consumer cameras have Wi-Fi now, and you can transfer photos that way. Right. So I think I think you're right that this this computer, you know, if, again, if this was real, which I it seems increasingly plausible. Um, if this was real, I think this this is a forward-looking computer, aggressively so, just like the first Air, as you said. They, they couldn't go, you know, basically portless. They couldn't go portless on the whole lineup yet. But they can have one weird outlier that is really good in some other way, most likely thinness and weight. Uh, they couldn't have this one crazy outlier that is awesome at this, at this like one aspect of itself and gives up a lot to get there. I think it, it's true too. And let's, you know, German's report, and I believe it. Um, I mean, it could be details are off, but I mostly believe it. But he seems very sure about it. And I think he attributed the source to someone with an Apple who's used one, or at least, you know, like used the current prototype. Yeah. And then the source told him everything about it. And then he gave that to an artist who made those renderings. Um, so, you know, there's some uh, pass it down the alleyway, you know, stuff that was probably not quite right in terms of, you know, the degree of tapering or some stuff like that. Um, but it wasn't German who said anything about what chip is in it, you know, whether it's this new M chip or anything like that. It, German's report was just what the thing looks like. Right. And we don't like Intel did just release a Broadwell series chip that is fanless or that can run fanless that it just uses. So, it uses so little power that it can run fanless. Did German say that it's fanless? No, I see. I I think everyone's guessing that it is probably fanless. I don't think he actually said it is, and you know the the, the way CPU cooling works, um, you can like it, you know all the current MacBooks have fans. Most of the time, most people won't hear them, especially the newer ones are even better. Uh, they're even quieter. But uh, the uh, the Retina series, but um, you can like you can have something that's totally fanless, like an iPad, and have it have it basically just use the chassis as a giant heatsink. And you know, just basically radiate heat, or you know, through contact, like radiate heat into the exterior shell or some interior thing that you know, touches the shell eventually. Um, if you have a little heat sink and you have any air moving it at all, even even if you have the slowest, quietest fan that most people don't even realize is there, like the original Apple TV had a fan, most people don't even know that. Um, even if you have the the tiniest little fan in there blowing the slowest speed it can and can possibly go barely moving any air over it that cools way better than any kind of passive cooling like the slightest bit of air movement is substantially better and you can you can dissipate a lot more heat that way so it reminds me of the the world's tiniest violin playing the world's smallest song <laughs> the world's tiniest fan yeah. blowing the world's smallest amount of air yeah like it makes a huge difference and and that gives you a much higher thermal budget and modern processors are pretty much all limited by their thermal budgets like their their performance is gated by that factor so it, it they don't have to use a fanless chip in this if they if they don't want to they still could if they wanted to 
I think they can fit a fan in there. I think they like. Well, if the surface has the, the surface has a fan, the Surface Pro does at least. Yeah, and and it's, surface, it's really thin, right? It's well, it's certainly thinner than. Uh, I, I think it's. Just, I'm not quite as sure if it's as thin as this MacBook is because the surface thinness doesn't have it doesn't have a hinge. Right. But, Although I think it has ports somewhere, so right. I, it probably isn't this thin, but it's probably in the ballpark. And and uh, so yeah, like I, I think they could put a fan in there if they want to. They could be using a CPU that that has that is like the same class as the existing MacBook Air CPUs of like that that class of performance. Right. Those so fans. German's report does say above the keyboard are four redesigned speaker grills that actually double as ventilation holes for the fanless device to keep cool. So German says it's fanless, but. We, we shall see. Um, I think you're right. I'm with you. And I I think that these Verge guys are just misreading the whole thing when they, they're they saying that it's like a, a, a low-end device that will compete with Chromebooks. Not a chance. I think it's going to be more expensive. And I think, therefore, just like when they introduced the Retina MacBook Pros and they kept non-Retina ones around to anchor the low end of the pricing tier. I mean, you could still buy non-retina MacBook Pros. You know, I think they started, I think they're only like 10, like a thousand bucks. I think you can get like a 13 inch. Yeah, MacBook I think there's Pro. one. Like, that's what I was saying. Like there's like one buried in the store that's like 1100 bucks. They mentioned that on Connected also. Yeah, so I think this will be more expensive than the current starting price for even the 13 inch MacBook Pro. And I don't think it'll be much more. I, I think it'll probably start at like, I don't know, 1300 bucks, 1400 bucks, maybe. Um, and that they'll keep, I don't know if they'll keep both the 11 and 13, but they'll keep at least the 13 around at 899 or maybe even drop it to 799. Yeah, maybe. For, I don't know. For the foreseeable future. I do think it would be kind of weird if they had 11, 12 and 13 on sale at the same time. Just seems like too, just that seems a little unhappily. Seems like to me, like maybe the 11, you know, what's the point of the 11? Is it to be 11 inches or is it to be this even, you know, the super smallest and lightest? Well, I think that this 12 inch, which seems to have a, a footprint mostly like the 11 and width wise is apparently the same width as the 11 and has a bigger screen because it has a smaller bezel. I, I'd say there's no reason for the 11 to exist. Yeah, the so, the eleven has such a wide bezel that it really has it has it does not make good use of its size for the screen. That you know the keyboard makes good use of the size, the body, but like the screen, like you look at that and you're like, man, I wish that bezel was thinner and the screen was bigger. I'm looking at it right now and it just looks ridiculous. It looks outdated. <laughs> no, it looks outdated. It looks like the laptops from when uh, you know I was you know in college and they you know were just like a tiny little thing in the middle of a huge bezel that they didn't even come close to taking up the full size of the the display panel. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing I'm guessing this thing is real. I'm guessing it comes out in the next couple of months, like soon, not not June. I'm guessing this comes out like this winter. Um possibly announced at the same event as the Apple Watch release date, I don't know. And possibly the iPad Maxi. I don't see I, I'm still not entirely convinced that's a real thing or that or that it's imminent rather. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I, I a lot of people are. I've seen a lot of people, and I think it's just you're not thinking this through. People thinking that, well, you know, remember the old Jobs trick where there was the internet communicator, a phone, and a widescreen video iPad. You know, dun, dun, dun. not three products; it's one product. Right. Well, there's you know a 12 inch MacBook and a 12 inch iPad and a MacBook and a Mac. Guess what? It's one device, and it's an iPad, and it has a keyboard, and it's like no. No, I definitely don't like. And I even no. said like. 
I even tweeted the other day, like I've I've long suspected that that the rumors are for one device, but I meant that in the sense that like people are misinterpreting the rumors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that, in the sense that this is a combined iPad and MacBook. Like that's right. That Apple's out in Asia sourcing these twelve inch Right. And they all displays. and everyone thinks, oh, that, that must be for a bigger iPad, but no, maybe it's also just for a smaller MacBook. Um, but I, I've a, a few people have told me that they have solid information from rumor sources, blah blah blah. That this it really is two different devices that are really separate. So fine, it doesn't really matter. But uh, I, yeah, the, I, I, I don't know. I can't possibly be less excited about a, about a twelve inch iPad. Just from, no, even it, though that's what Syracuse wants. It is what Syracuse wants, but he also wants like pro OS features to be added to make it you know better to be for multitasking and pro work. And I just I don't see a good way for that to be bolted onto iOS. I it's not to say they're not going to try. They might they might try. I don't know, but I I think I, I think these the the MacBook Air and this new you know quote MacBook Stealth whatever this new twelve inch thing is going to be called. I think that is Apple's answer to pro ultra mobile computing. Like it's the Mac, but smaller. Yeah. Like it's it's not trying to bolt on a bunch of pro multitasking power user features onto the iPad. Uh I think what do you German doesn't say the most curious thing to me is he doesn't mention retina display. Doesn't say it has one, doesn't say it doesn't have one, right. doesn't say. Which to me is crazy. I think it has to have a retina display because I don't think you can introduce new products anymore or at least Apple can't, that aren't. Like, there's never going to be a non-retina watch. The watch starts retina. Right. Everything new is retina. Yeah, I I, I, I think it, it would have to be, right? I mean... Right, I, and then I think the name is obvious. You just call it the MacBook Air with retina display. And it does. you don't even have to say that it's 12. Yeah, that it's makes sense. MacBook Air with retina display. And now it's it. they can use the Air name, which I think has great brand equity, and also make it very clear that it's the new thing because it's the retina display. Just like the MacBook Pro with Retina display, I think the um, the the rumor. I don't know if it was in German's report or someone else's, but the rumor that it might come in space gray is kind of exciting. Yeah, and gold. That's less exciting, but the space well, gray. <laughs> I know, I, I know. Well, right, because I would definitely buy the the space gray one. If it comes in space gray, that would be the first thing that puts a a tinge of desire in my heart. Yeah, because I mean, I'll tell you, like like the the Mac Pro, the, the new cylinder Mac Pro. That looks awesome in person. Like have it because that that is basically a space gray color. It's I don't think it's exactly the same color as the phones, but it's very close and it has it has a glossy finish. So it's but it, it's in the, in the ballpark. It looks so awesome in person. Like you just feel like a badass having that on your desk. It just looks fantastic. And, and I and I definitely think the the uh, you know bead blasted uh, aluminum look that we've had in Apple products for my entire time using Apple products. Um, I, I think that's that is in many ways, a timeless look that will never go fully out of style. However, it'd be nice to see something a little bit new, a little bit fresh in that area, if it's possible, and if it doesn't suck. So if, if they can make a space gray version of the top of it, I think it would be it would be a nice change of pace. Yeah, and wouldn't the the white version be lighter? Like, I don't have a, a white uh, iPhone handy here, but I'm I'm thinking that the, if an upside-down white iPhone is a lighter shade of aluminum than a MacBook. I don't think that's true. Or maybe it's, it's the same. same. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the same. But it would look different if they use white for the bezel, though. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that is true. Assuming it has like the because like you know the current MacBook Airs have the metal bezel the way the old laptops right. used to. If it if it adopts the like you know glass goes edge to edge and the bezel is like this black yeah. surround, or, yeah, then it could be white. You're right. Yeah, but space gray would be cool. The most inexplicable thing that Germans uh, 
renderings have, and I just don't get this, is why they have the power key where the escape key has been since forever. Oh, I hope that's wrong. I really, I, I saw that too, and I'm like, ooh, that's, that's going to be but, annoying. I can't help but think that that's just a mistake, you know, because it's, they're commissioning. But then again, wouldn't the mistake? Wouldn't it be easier, you know, to just use a keyboard layout that you've already had? Why, what, you know, it seems like it would be more work in Photoshop or whatever right. they use to build this to move that. Well, because the and the existing eleven inch fits it just fine. Like it, it puts it above uh, backspace, right? Above well, it, it by definition, it would it could go on either side, right? right? You would just slide over all the other keys and put it in the top right where it's been forever. And it's not so much that I want to hit that power key, but it, that I do use the escape key. And I don't want to put my MacBook to sleep when I just reach up there blindly and hit the top right mm, key. You know what, though? I just realized, you know, I think we are numbered here. I think most people hit backspace a heck of a lot more often than they hit escape. Oh, so and then maybe that's, that's why they plausible. move it. Oh, oh, man. Oh, so the explanation, maybe, and then they'll move it on all the keyboards. Yeah. Oh, because, so you, uh, you know, already, like, you can't just tap it. Like, you have to, like, hold it down for a second. Yeah, same thing I've with, never like, thought so that, of that. But yeah, now, like, now that you, when you're looking at a keyboard, you're looking at where it is in the 11 inch now, it's above backspace, or delete, rather, sorry, I, I have a Microsoft That's keyboard. the first logical explanation I've heard about that. Yeah, I've that's, thought about that. I guess I thought about that now, but that's that's unfortunate, because that sounds extremely plausible and reasonable, even though it would suck for people like us. Somebody on Twitter said it's that they're a, a Vim user, and they can't believe, they are can't believe Apple would do that. You know, Vim, Escape Key is too important to Vim users, and it's like... Yep. <laughs> I'm a Vim user when I'm on server stuff, and it also it's also autocomplete and TextMate. Like, yeah. oh man! Well, it's autocomplete system wide, isn't it? it oh, is or it? I don't know. F5 is too. I've or... only ever tried it in TextMate, but yeah. It, but I I think now that I think about the power button being above backspace instead, I think that's very plausible. Yeah. Ooh, I never thought of that. Oh, we're screwed. Uh, well, let's keep the show short. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> You're always very good at keeping the show short. I am. I am very good at the <laughs> in the last thirty seconds of keeping the show short. Uh, Marco Arment, thank you, thank you for the time and uh, uh, a lot of good conversation tonight. People can find out more at uh, your suddenly very popular website, Marco.org. That's and, right. And uh, your Twitter is at Marco Arment. My goal is to lose as many people as possible from my audience by blogging about really boring developer stuff for a while. Yeah. And of course, we got to mention ATP. Anybody, I can't. I, there's got to be so much overlap. But if there's, if you're out there and you like it when Marco's on the talk show, you got to listen to ATP. It's it's my favorite podcast, and I say that um, completely honestly. So, Thank you. Um, ATP is at atp.fm. Six characters for including the dot. So that's yeah, FM is pretty wide open because it costs like seventy bucks a year to register. So it's pretty easy to still get pretty good stuff there. Yeah, and it works, you know, works with the podcast angle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so check those three things out and uh, uh, wait for Marco to burn the internet down next week. <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you. Thank you. It was so great. I love it now that I've just given up on keeping shows a reasonable length. Oh, yeah. Screw it.